What's up, guys? If you're on Spotify right now, please follow the show so that you don't miss any future episodes and leave a five-star review. Thank you. If you're developing an alien spacecraft to come visit the Earth for some reason, since no one knows we exist beyond 100 light years from now, right, so let's say huge. by accident they stumble upon us. They've built a spacecraft that spends 99.9999% of its time traveling through space. But they develop something like a flying saucer, which is meant to be aerodynamic in the atmosphere of the Earth, which they didn't even know was there until they get here. But why would they design a spacecraft, a flying saucer, if you wish, which is not the most effective way of traveling through interstellar space? The law of physics tell us here here's the thing Lawrence Krauss, welcome to New Jersey, sir. It's so great. I think this is the first time I've been in Hoboken. Really? I was trying to remember if I've been in Hoboken before. I don't think so. This is this is my first. It'll be memorable. Didn't you grow up right over here? I was born right over there, but uh-huh. I moved out when I was three months old. I said, I don't want to live here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you made that decision. Where, where... I grew up in Canada. You grew up in Canada? In, in Toronto, yeah. So you're a true Canadian. I'm at, Well, I'm a sort of semi-true Canadian. Yeah, I actually... Um, uh, became Canadian, although when I, my parents became Canadian, I thought I'd lost my American citizenship. In fact, when I came back to graduate school at MIT, I was on a visa. Really? And, and yeah, I was on a visa all, all the time. And then I got my first job at Harvard and, and I tried to get permanent residency. And the Harvard lawyer said, we think you're a citizen. Yeah. I, I, well, is I, that you possible know, to you, lose it? Well, at that time, you apparently could. You see, my parents became Canadian. They lost their American citizenship uh, because at the time you had to renounce your citizenship in order to become citizen of another country. But mm. because I was a kid, I didn't suffer for the sins of my parents. And and I anyway, so I, I the Harvard lawyer said, you know, you can find out by applying for a passport, which I did. Got my passport, tore up my visa. And uh, anyway, so I'm there citizen of both. I'm a citizen of both countries. But yeah, you don't have a Canadian accent. I don't detect that's that. That's really. well. Every now and then, if I say about or something, I guess I do. But but then you know, I don't know what my accent is. But uh, some people say they can hear the Canadian accent. I think Canadians hear an American accent. But I lived in the U.S. longer than Canada. I grew up in Canada, but then I moved in my 20s to go to graduate school, and then I lived in the U.S. Mm. continuously until two years ago. I moved back to Canada. Mm. When you were a kid, when when did you first get bit by the science bug, and the meaning the meaning of it all? Well, you know, it's I've I've tried to think of that a lot because my uh, uh, my mother wanted me to be a doctor and my brother to be a lawyer, of course, and and uh, so she told me doctors were scientists. So I think from a little time I was a little kid, since I thought I wanted to be a doctor, I was interested in science. But I the, I, I really remember when I was eleven reading a book about Galileo that really mm-hmm. had a big impact. He seemed like a heroic figure. And I thought all scientists were heroic figures. I've discovered that's not true. But uh, so I got into that. And then it was in high school when I realized that doctors weren't scientists, but I was kind of <laughs> Last month, I had in my friend, Dr. Brian Keating for episode 173 of the podcast. And I really appreciate all the amazing feedback we had on that one. It won't be the last episode we do together. I really enjoyed talking with Brian. He's such a smart guy and obviously very keyed into the entire physics community in addition to physics. But in that episode, almost 84% of the people who watched were not subscribed. And so what happens when we have a lot of non-subscribers watching who aren't hitting the button is YouTube does not put these videos into the algorithm. So that episode did fine, but it didn't do amazing despite the fact that the click-through, the watch time were all great, and like I said, the feedback was awesome. So if you'd like to see this podcast, get into the algorithm more and get some more support behind it so that we can get great guests like Brian to come in here. 
please take a second and hit that subscribe button. It is a huge, huge help, and I appreciate all of you who have already done so. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And and I, I read a book in high school by a, a physicist named Sir James Jeans. It was called Physics and Philosophy, and that really um, convinced me. So I, I knew I wanted to do science, but I wasn't convinced that that's all I wanted to do. I did history. I took a year off school to work on a Canadian history book, and there were oh, a lot really? of things I, I, I thought I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to eventually... Understanding the fundamental features of the universe just seemed like the sort of sexiest thing you could do, and so... I always knew I'd go back to it, and I, I, I applied for my to graduate school, and uh, and didn't know if I'd get in anywhere. But I got into MIT. I also could. I was going to go to Oxford on a Rhodes scholarship to do physics and philosophy, but I'm mm. so happy I didn't. Why? I, well, I think philosophy is the kind of thing you get enamored with when you're young, and then you grow out of it. And mm. and, and uh, at least I did. And so. I went to do physics at MIT, and I didn't think I'd get a job. There were no jobs, and I, I got my PhD in early 80s, and uh, before you were born, probably. But anyway, yes. um, uh, and there were no jobs, so I, I sort of learned how to juggle and drive a taxi and things like that. But it turned out I got, I was lucky, and I got a good job at Harvard. And then it but when out. you, but when, especially the higher end of education, when you're studying something like that, don't your jobs generally go into academic research and, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, but there were no jobs in academia at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just remember it was it, the likelihood of getting a professorship. I mean, it's always small, but it just seemed very remote. And it was a gamble. But I, but And I tell kids nowadays who want to, you know, they want to know what whether they'll get jobs in this or that. You never know, first of all. But just do what you're interested in. And and mm. the training you get will be useful for whatever you're going to do. And, and, and to try and choose a career because you think there's going to be a job in it is... First of all, you don't know down the road. And secondly, it's what if you, get, you choose something you don't like and you get a job in it? What, how awful is that to spend your... So anyway, uh, it worked out. It was a gamble, but it worked out in the end. And now here you are, published a bunch of published yeah. books later, uh -huh. years and years in the space, doing all kinds of research. But the, the calling card that you're known for oh, is... What is it? I is like the know. concept of you thinking that everything came from oh, nothing. Oh, that, yeah. Uh -huh. Which is really hard. It is. It, even, as, even as someone, obviously I'm not a scientist, it, but it, as a layman, sometimes mm. if I'm walking down the street and I start thinking about the kind of decision trees of where mm -hmm. everything could have started, mm -hmm. I then get stressed because I'm like, oh my God, it could have all never happened and there would have been nothing. Yeah. But then you think about nothing and you're like, well, wait a minute. Fuck, nothing is nothing but that's still something because if you're picturing right. nothing you're picturing like an empty that, room that's well that's the you you got you really do understand it uh because it's it, nothing it's is it, really hard to understand and everyone has a different definition of it and i had to talk about that when i wrote the book because you're right an empty room seems like nothing but it's not nothing mm -hmm. the the nothing of the bible which a lot you see a lot of religious, religious people like to say, oh, well, you're not really discussing nothing. You really need God to make something. But the nothing in the Bible really is an infinite empty void, so it's like empty space. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm, if you read the Bible, nothingness was an empty void. And if you think the best example of that is like space with nothing there. But then where did the space come from? Yeah. And, and so 
when I talk about a universe from nothing in, in the book, what I really meant, and I still mean, is no space, no time. Everything that we see and everything in the universe that we see within the universe and the space and time that comprises our universe did not exist. And then it suddenly came into existence. And now, how did that happen? Well, <laughs> I can tell you plausibly how it happened. Okay. Because we don't have a theory of quantum gravity. But if, you, if gravity is, is governed by quantum mechanics, gravity... Well, quantum mechanics things says that things are fluctuating all the time, the variables of, of, of quantum mechanics. And in, in gravity, if it's a quantum theory, the variables of gravity are space and time. Mm. So if gravity is a quantum theory, then, then virtual universes, virtual space-times, think of the universe as like a ball, can pop into existence and go out of existence in a short time. It ha that's what happens right now. If you take space right now, it's full of virtual particles popping in and out of existence. We know that. We can't measure them directly because they're virtual, but they produce effects that you can measure, and we can mm. predict those effects, and they're the best measured predictions in all of science. The properties of atoms, the spectra of atoms, we can predict to, in some sense to 11 decimal places, and if you didn't include the effect of virtual particles, you get the wrong answer. But if you do, you get the right answer. It's the best measured prediction in all of science. So we know these virtual particles pop in out of existence, and they determine the properties of atoms. They determine the properties of elementary particles. But if, if gravity is a quantum theory, then virtual universes are popping in and out of existence all the time. Most of them, you know, are in, in existence for a fraction of a second. I mean, unbelievably small fraction. Like in our time. Well, even in our time, they could exist and, and go out of existence. But some of them can exist for a long time if they have zero total energy. Because if, they ex if you have a virtual particle that suddenly exists and continues to exist, it violates energy conservation, right? If the mm. particle had a mass, that's why they have to disappear in a time so short you can't measure them. But in certain conditions, like near a black hole, as Stephen Hawking showed, virtual particles and antiparticles can spontaneously appear, but one of the particles can fall into a black hole, losing more energy than the rest mass of the particle that remains, so you don't violate energy conservation, and black holes evaporate. That's called Hawking, Hawking radiation, okay? Is there, a now, way to, is there a way that we prove that? No, right now, we, I mean, first of all, you don't really prove things in, to be true in science. You prove them to be false, okay? Mm. But you could at least measure it, and we can't measure Hawking radiation of black holes because we can't see black holes at that level. We can produce analogs, analog experiments on Earth with, with things that behave like gravity, with fluids, for example. In fact, I just wrote a particle, an article in, in Nature uh, uh, about that. And when we do that, we see the, an, the analogs of Hawking radiation. But the mathematics is consistent. So we really think that black holes do radiate. Okay. And for people out there, because I know there, there's a lot, I don't, I don't want to keep cutting you sure, off. Sure, sure, no, to keep cutting you off. I realize we've got to go back to the beginning but at some stuff, point. But stuff like, like black holes, can you just bring people up to speed on okay, how black that hole, works? Yeah, black hole is an exotic object, and it's, it's, it's got a neat name, which is one of the reasons they make movies yeah. about it. In Russian, by the way, it's called a frozen star, so you don't see any movies in Russian called. Mm. But black holes are, are a neat name. But a black hole is simply a, a, a massive object that's the gravity at its surface is strong enough that light can't escape. Right? The escape velocity from the Earth is, I think, 11 kilometers per second. So if you want to send a rocket ship up and you want to escape the Earth, it doesn't matter what's on the rocket ship. You've got to have it go traveling at least 11 kilometers per second in order to escape the Earth. It's just the way it is. Okay? If I put an extra teaspoonful of matter on the Earth, then the escape velocity from the Earth would be a little bit greater. 
mm. and a little bit greater and greater. If I put enough mass on the Earth, then the escape velocity would exceed the speed of light. But you can't go faster than light, and that really would then say the Earth is a black hole. Nothing can escape. If light can't escape, mm. then nothing can escape. And that's, that was first realized, by the way, in the 1700s by, I mean, not with general relativity, but with Newton's law of gravity by a British, uh, basically, clergyman at, at, in, who, was, who was also ultimately a professor at, at uh, Cambridge, 100 years after Newton. And he estimated that if you had a star that was 500 times the mass of the sun and made of the same stuff as the sun, then the speed of then the escape velocity from its surface would be greater than Whoa. speed of light. So he already he that didn't call them black ago. holes. What that long ago? Yeah, but yeah, he didn't, and it didn't catch on. But he basically got the number right. In any case, so if you have a very massive object like uh, that collapses to be to be small enough, so the gravity of the surface is is big enough to bigger than so that the speed of light uh, is not fast enough to escape then nothing escapes. So, mm. And black holes are exotic, but they're not that exotic. The, the smaller the black hole, the denser it has to be to have that kind of gravity. If you took an object, the mass of the sun, if it collapsed to be the size of Hoboken, <laughs> it'd become a black hole. And that's not mm. to say Hoboken's a black hole. Don't, don't, it's don't, not. No, not. But, but uh, you know, each teaspoonful of matter would be like hundreds of billions of tons. That's how dense it'd have to be. Whoa. But if you took an object, the mass of our galaxy, and said, how big, what would the density of that object be when it became a black hole? It would be the density of water. Not too dense. The density of water? Water, yeah, but there's so much of it that, by, that, that if you have a, 100 billion times the mass of the sun and you compress it to a size so the average density is water, at the surface of it, the gra gravity is great enough that it's still greater than the speed of light to escape from. Now, here's the thing that's going to blow your mind, I hope. It's a lot blowing my mind so okay. far, but keep going. Okay. Well, if I had an object with the mass of the known universe and asked what would its average density be for it to be a black hole, the average density would be a, within a factor of two of the density of our observed universe. So you could be living inside of a black hole. It's not so bad. Mm. A closed universe is effectively a black hole. In, in general relativity, space is curved in the presence of matter. And the universe can exist in one of three kind of geometries, so-called open, closed, or flat. You can't picture them because you're talking about four-dimensional geometries. But, but uh, go down in a dimension, and you can sort of think of a, of a, um, a two-dimensional sphere, the surface of a two-dimensional sphere, as a, as a closed universe, because you go around and you come back to where you began. In a closed universe, if I looked far enough in that direction, you'd see the back, I'd see the back of my head. Ooh. Yeah, right? Because light would go around. Yeah. So it's almost... It's like a sphere, but it's a three-dimensional sphere, it, not a two-dimensional sphere. It has sphere. the feel of, a, of flatness. Well, yeah, but you've got to think about what flatness is. It, it, so, so a flat three-dimensional universe is just the universe you always thought you lived in, one where the X, Y, and Z axes always point in the same direction everywhere. Mm. But in a curved three-dimensional universe, if, if I go up on the Z axis here, somewhere else is going to be pointing in a different direction. Mm. And in a closed universe, it'll curve back on itself... In, a, in an open universe, it'll still curve, but it's infinite. It's kind of like a saddle, uh, an infinite saddle in, in three dimensions. What was, I, I, it starts with a T, the word is escaping me right now, but in interstellar, what oh. was that supposed five-dimensional 
reality uh, that he went into when he was looking through the bookcases and seeing his yeah, daughter. Yeah, yeah. well, and I, I try and it? block that movie out of my mind. I was just talking about it this morning. The worst science fiction movie ever made. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Why, um, do, you, why do you say that? Uh, because, look, it wasn't the black hole. My Kip Thorne, who had the concept of the movie, is a Nobel Prize winning physicist and a friend of mine, and he's a really good scientist. And, he, and, the, and the picture of what the black hole would look like for that planet, that was his stuff. But the, but the story itself, which the eventually made into a movie, which I don't think was his story completely, was just so ridiculous. The simple stuff. You see, for me to like science fiction, you know, I wrote a book called The Physics of Star Trek, so mm -hmm. I know, but so the important thing about science fiction is not the science in it, but whether the story is good enough to make you suspend disbelief. And mm. there were so many stupid things about that story at a basic level, not the fancy string theory stuff, which I all thought, thought was silly, but the basic stuff. So the purpose of this whole mission is because the oxygen in the planet is going yes. because plants are dying. Yes. Okay. Now, it took two billion years for plants, for organic life on Earth to build up the oxygen level to the level it is. So, okay. So one generation of plants dying ain't going to destroy the oxygen on Earth. Moreover, if it was happening... Do you think the solution would be to build this incredible rocket ship to travel to God knows where instead of maybe thinking of geoengineering here on Earth? Let me give you another... But weren't they saying that wasn't in their hypothetical reality, that that but, wasn't I mean, possible? But, but the problem isn't a problem. It wouldn't have happened. I mean, the, we wouldn't lose oxygen. It's good to know. But also, let me take a more simple thing. You got this incredible, the likelihood of being able to create this incredible complex with this fantastic traveling spacecraft in the Midwest underground without an anyone knowing that this whole thing is built. Right. It's just there in the cornfield and somehow one day it just appeared. I mean, it, those trivial things enough to make me n not want to suspend disbelief. I remember I tweeted after I saw Interstellar, I had two tweets. One was said, I saw Interstellar, three hours can be like 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my favorite tweets. well actually though that concept that concept is the right time but, dilation but, that's yeah. wild that's true and i t i had kip uh, kip and thorne and i were on stage and i talked to kip about that after interstellar and i said yeah that's true but the problem is it, if the gravity is strong enough to have that kind of time dilation then you're going to be crushed the tidal Why? force because the tidal if the gravity is very strong there are so-called tidal forces Right? Actually, the force of gravity on your feet is greater than the force of gravity on your head. All right, so hold on real quick, just for people out there. When we're talking about time dilation, we're talking about how time is, is measured differently, like the farther you get away from something. Yeah, yeah because, and that's true in, because of gravity. gravity, the gravity when the gravity is weaker, clocks travel faster than they do when it's stronger. Okay? Okay? That, and, and that's why... That's interesting. Uh, well, it's not only interesting. You use it every day. I used it to get here almost if I'd been driving. My, my driver used it to get here because he was using GPS. Okay? Wait, so how to... Hold, hold on. on. I'm gonna that's tell, over I'm my gonna head. Explain it. I know I'm going to get there. Okay. Okay? I remember writing a piece on this a long time ago. So if we didn't depend on... We need to know about time dilation or GPS wouldn't work. Because GPS satellites are traveling about at 10 to 20,000 miles above the Earth's surface, going about 8,000 miles an hour. Um, and so the gravity on those sat by those satellites is weaker than the gravity of the Earth. Now, the way a GPS works is basically a, a, a signal is sent from, the sat from your yes. phone to the satellite and back end, and the time it takes to travel to the satellite is measured. And then there's another satellite 
That's why you always need two or three satellites for GPS to work. And the time is measured there. And you triangulate because you know the speed of light yeah. and the time. And measuring the different times, you figure where the person is. That's how the satellites know where you are. Okay? Well. Now, if the clocks on the satellites are kicking at a different rate than the clocks on Earth, then you go out of sync. And you can work out, given the gravity of the Earth and the height of those things, that within a day, they, those clocks would be out by about 38 microseconds, which doesn't sound like a lot. But, but light travels about a meter in a, in a nanosecond. If you didn't take into account that, the general relativity, the time dilation due to general relativity, your GPS in an hour would be out by a kilometer. So we have to take into account the fact that these clocks on the, on the, the atomic clocks on those satellites are ticking at a different rate. It's not so. This isn't hypothetical. Your whole life depends upon it if you're traveling in a, in a car. So interstellar is not all bad. Well, no, no. It, you, the, well, it's not all bad, but not, very few things are all bad. Well, it's Lawrence, you've got to entertain people. You I know. You've got to keep it 50% I know, true, but you can only, false. I agree, but you can only entertain people like me if the story's good That's enough true. to suspend disbelief. I don't mind. But lots you're of, a genius. No, no, but hold on. I don't mind lots of science fiction where, the, where, where the, you know, I love, I like Star Trek, there's lots of nonsense, but if the stories are good enough, then you don't mind suspending disbelief. And and in, in that story, be, the basic features of the story, I thought were silly. I didn't, you know, and that was enough Earth's to. Dying. And yeah. then and then and then well, even and then this bookcase thing. It's, I just thought it was all. My other tweet was uh, I saw Interstellar should have stayed home, and <laughs> and that was the other line is Interstellar. But anyway. Um, but so that was the problem. And Pete, now you'll get a lot of hate mail, or I will now because of that. That's but all right. In any case, so. If you're trying to navigate market turbulence, why not set course to the Noble Gold Investments Safe Haven? With global uncertainty looming, your savings and retirement plans are under siege. But there's one asset that stood the test of time gold. So unlock the peace of mind that comes with owning gold, the ultimate safe haven. And if precious metals are new to you, Noble Gold Investments will hold your hand throughout the entire process. Why? Because they have a team of experts who will guide you every step of the way to safety. Thousands of investors have sheltered their retirement savings with Noble Gold Investments. So don't leave yourself completely exposed to the markets right now. It's way too risky. With gold at an all-time high and looking to climb further, it's the perfect time. To open a Noble Gold Investments IRA and secure Secure your future along with a free gold bullion coin. Act now before it's too late. Go to noblegoldinvestments.com slash Julian Dory or call 877-646-5347. And if you do so right now, Noble Gold Investments will also give you one free three-ounce silver American virtue coin as well. Once again, that's www.noblegoldinvestments.com slash Julian Dory or simply hit the link in my description below. So head there now and open up your own gold IRA with the only gold company I trust. Uh, I don't know what got us onto Interstellar, but... Well, we were starting off this this whole... Black holes. Yes, exactly. Black holes. Okay, so black holes are, we think, are real objects, and we've actually been able to image something we think is a black hole. And as I say, Kip Thorne's done a lot of work on black holes. Among, that's not what he won the Nobel Prize for. So they're very exotic objects, but again, if they were the size of the universe... They're not that exotic. You could live in one, right? A closed universe. Now that's what I was getting back to. So a closed universe is one that closes in on itself. If it's full of just matter and radiation, it'll eventually have to collapse. 
and to a point. And, and that's how what, long does the, well, the collapse it, is instant? But how long? No, could it doesn't. It take no, to build it, up no, to no that? It, well, and if our if our universe were closed right now and it started to collapse, it would take as long to collapse as it ex- took to get there. So it'd be four, it'd be twelve billion, thirteen billion years. I want to I want to make sure I'm not missing something here mm-hmm. with how you're talking about it. Yeah. The way I've always understood it uh-huh. is that you know we have the planetary system, the stars, the mm-hmm. sun. Obviously, then you have it as a part of a galaxy yeah. that is a collection of stars, yeah. and then the, the, all the galaxies comprise the universe. But I want to make sure you are still referring to the fact that that is that is everything. That I'm is just one saying well, I'm not, that may not be everything, but I'm just saying take something. Take the our universe may be infinite, but take the region of the universe we can see, which is really all that matters. Which is like nothing, though. Well, it's, it's we can pretty, see we can see the sun. No, no, we, we can, can see, see stars. We can see out to the most distant stars in the in in, in, in the, the galaxy. Ga- Not in the galaxy. We can see way beyond our galaxy. We can see a hundred billion galaxies in our observable universe. With our telescopes, we can see out to, back to early times, about twelve or thirteen billion years ago, almost, and out to distances of forty to fifty billion light years away. Really? Yeah, we do it all. That's what the that's what the James Webb Space Telescope was designed to do. I didn't know it's all that far. Of course it is. Yeah, you can see as far as you as light allows you to see. So so we 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 know in our observed universe there are over a hundred billion galaxies. Turns out if you go back in time, there were like two trillion galaxies you could see. But a lot of those galaxies have merged today to form. To, so the like our Milky Way galaxy cannibalized a lot of other smaller galaxies. What do you mean it cannibalized? Well, I mean what I mean is that. There were small systems that fell together due to their mutual gravitational attraction, eventually building up to form our Milky Way galaxy. There are a few. There are some satellite galaxies around us right now. If you live in the Southern Hemisphere, you can see the large and small Magellanic clouds, they're called. And those are small satellite galaxies, which will eventually collapse into our galaxy. You you can see the Andromeda galaxy, which is 2 million light years away. looks just like our galaxy. It's a beautiful Mm. thing with the reasonable telescope. But it's heading right towards us. In five billion years, it's going to collide with our galaxy. Because do you think, of do you think Earth could end long before then, though, too? Well, because of well, other things. Well, Earth, the Sun at that point, within five billion years, the Sun will have eaten the Earth because <laughs> it'll become a red giant. Unless we move the Earth, which is possible. How and, would we move the Earth? Hold well, on, it's easy. You can't just say that. I mean, it's easy. I threw it out. We're there trying to get the Mars right now. And that's I know hard. that's going to be hard. But in a in a five billion years, maybe you could move the Earth. It might be easier to move the Earth than to get to Mars in a way. Real. All right, you're going to have to defend that one. Yeah, I know. Um, be, well, actually, I learned this from a friend of mine. He actually won the Nobel Prize in physics. He's a pretty good physicist. But um, uh, so. Uh, all you have to do, if, if, if you want to move the Earth out, you have to change its, its, its energy of its motion. And the way you can change the energy of motion is if three bodies collide, they can exchange energy. Mm. So all you have to do is direct asteroids close to the Earth, but not close enough to hit it. And, and they'll gain energy in the process of that interaction of the Earth and Sun system. How but would the, you do that? Direct well, you'd go, you'd go out to them and put a little rocket on them and, or, and, or knock them <laughs> or knock them to the side. The way we want to protect the Earth, by the way, right? We know there are o- objects that are going to collide with the Earth and cause massive destruction if they don't move it. So as there it has is in a, the past. As has in the past. And we now have a system of looking for those things. And as you probably know, NASA did a test mission last year where they, they, they knocked into a they, – they basically had a, had a, a, a rocket knock into a – Wait, uh, I don't. I don't you remember this. Let, Maybe small, I do, but it's not in it's, there right they, now. They, they they knocked into a small asteroid and saw the change in its motion. That's probably the How way did they we, knock into it. They took a, a, a spacecraft and and rammed it into it. You don't know about that? No, look it up. I don't. It's on Google. Can we look and this up? unlike most things, it's on Google. It's true. 
<laughs> That's a we're, we're gonna put a pin in that one. All right, NASA's that DART works. data validates kinetic impact as planetary defense mission. Yeah, let's scroll down, Alessi, if you don't mind. This is the video right here. If you want to see it. All right, yeah. Can we put this video in the corner? Yeah. This might be copyright, but so in which case we'll just leave it. It's on NASA, the screen. so I don't think it is actually. But it probably, oh yeah, it's government. It, it's, it might be too well, long. Do you check how long brief, it is? It's a brief one. So is the, this is the takeoff of it? Yeah. Is that like a rocket? Yeah, it's a rocket. That's what we call a rocket. How big is that thing? Big. Like, like, all right, <laughs> but like, what are we talking? Like, I don't know. Maybe ten stories. That's actually okay. Oh, the the object itself is small. It's probably a ton or less. Did it? Ha- did they put anything special in there, like a nuclear bomb or no, something? No, 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 no. They don't. No, they just hit it. They just okay. rammed it into the asteroid. That's it right there. That's it. Whoa! So they have the video and and it impacted on that small asteroid. And how far away was this asteroid approximately? Far. I don't know. Far. And there's people <laughs> happy. One of the few times you have a collision that people are happy about. When did they? How long did it take after launch for it to reach that? Uh, probably it probably took. Uh, I, I again I don't remember, but my bet is it took over a year. Whoa! That's not. But you know what though? That's not that far. No, I know, but that point is that if you know far, if we we have a planetary defense system where we have telescopes looking for potential Earth colliding objects that are, say, that will take 10 years to get here, if we see them far enough, you know, maybe take 10 years to get here, then you might imagine getting a rocket and launching it with enough time to deflect its trajectory by enough to... To, to miss the Earth, and that's the mm. idea of planetary defense. It's a really useful thing. I mean, the likelihood that we're going to be hit is small. The big asteroids take maybe once every 100 million years, okay? Smaller uh, ones, okay. well, those are Earth-destroying asteroids, but ones that could cause havoc are probably, you know, more frequent. But it's not that, not that frequent, but it's still a reality, Unlike many things that people spend money on. How and, big was the asteroid that took out the dinosaurs? It, I th- it, it was probably, uh, um, it, it, was, it was between 1 and 10 kilometers across in size. See, that's not that big. I know. But it I know, it isn't that big. A 1 kilometer asteroid would, that hit the Earth would cause massive def- uh, devastation. And 100 so? meters wouldn't, but uh, 1 kilometer. And so 10 kilometers is probably Earth life-destroying. Is it because the force of the impact gets it down to like the core? No, or, no, or, no, or not no, nothing core, like that. Like no, a, no, no, no. It didn't. This one that the, that the one that killed the dinosaurs that landed in Chicxulub. It's landed. What there's a big crater in the underwater. Now it's underwater in Central America, and um, so it wasn't the crater. It was. It produced a lot of things like tidal waves, but it also in the at, in the atmosphere, it's going very fast and it and it burning hot and it produced. And it knocked out stuff that would produce fires throughout the whole world. So, you know, there's many w- different ways you could have imagined. So that could have changed the climate and destroyed dinosaurs. It might have affected the, the oceans, the, the acidic level of the oceans from all the, uh, uh, the, the, the force of the impact and the fires that happened. So there's lo- no one, I think, it's not clear what, me- what exactly killed the dinosaurs, but... but uh, as a result of that collision, but it could do many different things that would do it. And so you wouldn't want to be around when such a thing happened. Do you Although have... the smallest mammals survived, right? And like we're what? lucky that they survived because they became birds and, and everything else that we... Uh... What mammals survived? Well, we, I mean, there were small... The, the ancestors of birds and, and, and that are now birds who were little dinosaurs. And, and, uh, and the point is that big things tended to not survive, little things tended to survive. And those little things, if nothing survived, we wouldn't be here. 
right? Yeah. So some things had to evolve, evolve in, and and into us, survive and evolve into us. So we're lucky. We're we're that that you know that they we're and we're an accident. If that that hadn't happened, you know, maybe that we'd be be two dinosaurs having a podcast right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if you talk to I other feel like physicists, they <laughs> if you talk to other physicists, they'll talk about. And I don't want to get to multiverse yet, but yeah. sometimes if you look at like theoretical multiverse, it could sometimes even be where we're tuned to yeah. just the right frequency that there's dinosaurs in this room right now in another reality. In another reality, yeah, that's a little metaphysical for me, but it's yeah, definitely yeah. out there. Yeah. But but what? How old were you when you first came up with your theory that? everything came from nothing and that, you know, to extend that, that there is no God or, or something. Well, or I mean, I started to kind of figure the God thing was was um, not likely when I was, you know, a, a kid, when I was 12 or 13. Why? Well, the story seemed kind of silly mm. and everything I knew about the universe seemed to suggest that there weren't any miracles happening that I could see. And uh, Really? Yeah, yeah. You don't think it's some sort of miracle that something like the Big Bang could just... It's miraculous, but it's not a miracle. It doesn't defy the laws of physics. I think that that's sound, what... That sounds like I, I didn't fuck her, but I used a condom. Yeah. Like, well, maybe, but I guess, what do you, how do you define a miracle? Something that is beyond... That is beyond Mm-hmm. See, you're physical. That something that is beyond what we know is physical possibility. No, that's not a miracle. That's just how do you define it? Uh, well, a miracle, I'd say, is something that violates known laws of physics. See, that's the very science answer. That yeah, because it, you know, if it's just stuff we don't understand, that it's not miraculous. It's just amazing. Okay, and so maybe I shouldn't use the word miraculous. I should say it's amazing the Big Bang happened. But it's uh, but. Is there anything we can't explain about the Big Bang? There's right lots now? of things we can't explain, but not like what? understanding. I've, what I've said many times, and listen to this carefully. Okay. And believe me later. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but he's dying over <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but uh, <laughs> anyway, is that not understanding something is not evidence for God? It's evidence for not understanding. There's a lot we don't understand about the universe, but that doesn't mean we'll never understand it. So we, you know, my new book, The Edge of Knowledge, is the first sentence says the three most important words in science are "I don't know." Oh yeah. Okay, because not knowing is an invitation to explore and discover. I love that message. Yeah, it is more an important. People, more people need to hear that, not yeah. just in science. Yeah. Oh, and particularly not just in yeah. science, and and that's why I think it's important. But so so yeah, there's a lot we don't understand about the Big Bang. We don't understand when I talk about how the universe came from nothing. I can't prove. I don't have a theory of quantum gravity. All I can show is that it's plausible. And the fact that it's plausible that you can create a universe with 100 billion galaxies without any supernatural shenanigans is amazing to me. <laughs> and I thought amazing enough to write a book about. And, uh, and so, you know, what I can say is the following. If you asked, what would a universe that was created from nothing, that arose from nothing spontaneously by plausible extensions of the known laws of physics... What would such a universe, if it lasted 13.8 billion years long, what would such a universe look like? And the answer is, it would look precisely like the universe in which we live. Now, does that prove that's the case? No, but it's strongly suggestive. It would look precisely like, like the, the universe, universe in, in which we live. Because that's just operating under the assumption of what we... What no, we know no, we no. I mean, in order to survive, you'd say, what would be the characteristics of such a universe that would that rose spontaneously, and what would the processes that would happen, what would it look like? What would its 
would it look flat? Yes. Well, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it would look like the universe in which we live. So you'd say, well, okay, I can say that's a plausible reality. And the fact that I can, it's like, you know, let's go back to Darwin, okay? Darwin developed uh, evolution and that is the natural selection without knowing about genomics and without knowing about uh, DNA um, uh, uh, variations and spontaneous uh, mutations and uh, the basic fundamental underlying mechanism behind natural selection, the, 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 the variations in genes among a population. He didn't know about that. But what he said was, look, it, you know, it, measuring finches in the, in the Galapagos, among other things, I'll be in the Galapagos in a, in a month or two. Oh, that's uh, awesome. And, and, that I can understand how that would happen plausibly, how over long enough periods, natural selection could operate to create a great, huge diversity of species uh, from a simple beginning. And he said, and he showed by a lot of different examples how plausible it was, and, uh, but never, but didn't have proof of watching one, of, of watching speciation happened. And, but the theory was so overwhelmingly plausible, it was so much better than, and, and so much more reasonable that once he realized it, it became obvious that it was probably true. And now we know a lot more and we can test a lot of other things he couldn't at the time. And so I kind of view this as the same thing, that we can show this as plausible, but we haven't yet gotten to the point, either theoretically or observationally, to demonstrate the details of that mechanism. Well, I think I think at this point we've proven it, that the concept of evolution is, yeah. abso- is oh, absolutely true. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. Well, the evolution is undeniable happened. The Big yes. Bang really happened. But, but I can't prove to you that the universe arose from nothing. I can just say it's plausible, and it's more plausible than the alternatives. But let's, let's stick with evolution for a okay, second. This sure. is where I always get confused. Where okay. When I start thinking about the timeline in my head, I'm uh-huh. like, wait, how does this make sense? So if we look at post-Younger Dryas, humanity is born again, right? So obviously, I guess it would be some people had to survive from the from the catastrophe and everything, but that means other animals. From which, from which catastrophe? From like post-Younger Dryas when you had uh, like, you know. Oh, yeah, there were a lot of almost, there, there, well, I, I mean, happily in the time that, I mean, humans went through a bottleneck where humanity almost went extinct, probably in the tip of, of Southern Africa, where there may be a hundred individuals. That How survived. long ago are we talking? We're talking somewhere... Um, in the neighborhood of less than a million years ago. Okay. All right. Yeah. That makes okay. sense. So when we're looking at evolution, I always have to catch myself not thinking like, oh, the little microbiome started 12,000 years ago and got to this point. <laughs> Obviously, that's no, it not takes, the case. You need long what, – what, what Darwin first realized when he visited – when he went on the voyage of the Beagle, which is an amazing book to read, is – it was geology that convinced him that the earth was really, really old and that you, ha- and then how, how difficult it is. We're not, we didn't evolve to understand. We didn't evolve to understand maybe hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, but millions of years or billions of years are just beyond our, uh, you know, direct intuitive understanding. And it's hard to understand how gradual things that seem implausible over long enough times can happen. That's why most people, many people have a hard time accepting that evolution happened because they think, oh yeah, we have, you know, monkeys and, and us had a common ancestor 10,000 years ago. Well, that's not when it happened. Mm, Five yeah. million years ago, maybe. And, and so um, uh, it's that slow, gradual process of things accumulating over long times. It took a while for Darwin to finally recognize. But it's the same thing. He looked at the... I, what, he looked at the stones. 
in south in, in the southern tip of, of South America when he was on the voyage of the Beagle and saw the mountains and he and he looked in the mountains and found fossils of of sea life. Okay, and he realized that there were geological processes that were happening inexorably slowly, so mm. that those you know at some point a long time ago, the, what was the mountain now was in the uh, under the sea. Okay, and then the pebbles that came you know had to had to erode from erosion from large rocks and. And again, the time it would take to do that would be so long that he started to realize, okay, then other processes can happen that are inexorably slow, okay? I mean, and, you know, looking at, looking at, just look at the, at the, at the watch and, and see if you can see the secondhand move or, the, you know, or see the minute hand move. It's moving so slowly right. that you can't see it move, but a minute later, it's a minute further on. Yeah. Yeah. And what year, I'm sorry, year, what how long ago do you think we had the first the first humans in basic form walk on this earth approximately what do you mean in humans in basic form meaning Hominids? we were we were there were still apes and there were still genes that we probably that well, we somehow still, he- we, we still have we still share nine, over 97% of Correct. our genes with but modern hominids homo sapiens homo sapiens have been around I mean, Neanderthals have been around for at least maybe 300,000 years to 30,000 years ago. Homo sapiens, which is our species, if you want to call it that, evolved, you know, less than 100,000 years ago in Africa mm. and, um, and coexisted with, with Neanderthals. And probably one of the, one of the plausible ar- arguments is that we, if we coexisted, first of all, we coexisted enough to mate with them. We all have Neanderthal DNA in our, in our thing, but it's also possible we that, that modern Homo sapiens were responsible for uh, uh, killing them. Okay, for eventually, Kill. eventually making Neanderthals extinct. It could have happened one of two ways. It could have happened by violent encounters, or it could have happened just simply by out competition. That as mm. climate change, Neanderthals couldn't adapt adequately, and Homo sapiens did. You know, it's called natural selection. Most species that have ever been on Earth are extinct. Yeah. And, and that's why to assume we won't become extinct is kind of a pompous assumption. Because certainly, I mean, we're, we have this great, amazing ability called foresight, which in principle would allow us to survive. But if you look around today and see what's happening, it's sort of, you, it may be doubtful. Yeah. And we'll see. It depends on the day, whether what, what I think about that. But so, so most species are become extinct. And, and, and it doesn't, so to think that we're the capstone of evolution is kind of a pompous assumption. Mm. With humanity going back that far, though, and so many cataclysmic type events that have occurred since, do you are you someone who ever thinks about what kind of maybe technological breakthroughs could have happened in previous civilizations that we don't know about now? No, <laughs> never. Well, there are things that look early civilizations were some of them were quite good. The Greeks were knew the the Greeks knew the circumference of the Earth, and which was then forgotten until we well, measured that's during against. this era, though. And what, the, what, even though it's an early civilization, it's during well, this era of humanity. Well, there were, yeah, but there were no it's civilizations that had language and writing and technology before, much before the Greeks. A modern civilization, really? maybe 10,000 years, goes back 10,000 years. Mm. But before that, humans were in small tribes, and before that, you know, even not hominids. As I say, there were small groups of humans in a cave in, in South Africa for, the, for about 100,000 years, 
during which, by the way, climate change caused the sea to come in and out by a factor of maybe 10 miles. So during that time, some of that time, they were fishing, getting high protein, probably during that time. For 100,000 years. Yeah, during that time. In an instant. (laughs) Yeah, during that time, probably when they had high protein diets is when their brain increased in size, allowing, Mm. allowing, um, you know, so all sorts of factors came into our evolution that are important. But, um, but there were no, there's no ancient civilizations before, before that, that had, uh, there's no evidence whatsoever or any plausible argument for why any ancient civilization, these arguments that like ancient aliens and stuff is just bogus. So Lawrence Krauss isn't sitting around thinking about the lost city of Atlantis too much. No, no, I'm not. Not in terms of, I mean, there are, there are probably, there are cataclysmic events that probably cause uh, islands to disappear under the water and, and, and that can happen. That can certainly arise by volcanic events. But they didn't hide some civilization that knew how to have flying cars or... or, uh, or be so cool. Or, that'd be so much fun. If, that's right. But we have to realize we all want to believe. We're like Fox right. Muldar. That's right. And, and, we have to, and so like Richard Feynman said, the easiest person to fool is yourself. And so you've yes. got to constantly recognize that we all want to believe. And, and, and then we have to say, well, what do we want to believe in? And maybe if we believe in it, there's a reason we want to believe in it. Maybe it's not right. Maybe it's but, not true. But you also, it, it does work both ways too. I agree with you a hundred percent. Like well, when you I have to, cause I'm right. When, <laughs> <laughs> when I look at so many people these days and you know, all these stories are interesting and yes, I look into them too. And there's a part of me that wants to believe all this stuff, whether it be looking at ancient civilizations, some of the UFO stuff, whatever. But in science, what was that line you had a little bit ago where you said, Science isn't about proving something; it's about proving something that's not. You can't. You can't prove things to be right in science. You can right. prove. You can prove things to be wrong. Absolutely. Okay. But just because so, something survives the test of experiment now doesn't mean it's absolutely right. There could be an experiment that comes along that shows you have to modify your theory. Exactly. So, so if if you are looking, for example, in your in some of your life's work, where you are looking all the way to the end of the spectrum, and what I mean by that is to where it's either nothing or it's God, creator, whatever, you fill in the word there, and you're saying that that doesn't exist. Isn't that the toughest thing to even make that decision on, and and are you open to being wrong about that? I'm open to be wrong about everything. All right, that's good. That's the whole point of being a scientist, and all of us should be. Being wrong is a wonderful thing. It means you have something else to learn. And I've been wrong many times in my life. Well, I was wrong once, I think, 20 years ago. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and I remember I was wrong because I thought I was wrong. What were you wrong about? <laughs> no, I always thought I was wrong. I was, I was wrong about uh. it. No, that's just a joke. I've been wrong many times in my life. And, and the older I get, the more I realize that. And so that's fine. There's nothing. But, but, what, what I underst- but what I'm willing, the difference between science and religion is that you're willing to change your mind. Mm. <laughs> when the evidence tells you to. Do you think so, science can turn into religion, though, too? Well, science... Look, we're all religious in one way or another. We mm. all want to believe. Yes. The, science, the usefulness of science is it trains us, if it does right, to be willing to realize that if the evidence, if contrary evidence comes along, then you throw out some beautiful idea that you believed in your heart of hearts, like yesterday's newspaper. You're willing to do that. And I think that's the difference between science and religion, and not science and ideology. And unfortunately, there's too much. There's a lot of ideology creeping into science yes. nowadays, and I've written about it, as you probably know. And and um, and so the idea that so, nothing is there's nothing that should be not subject to question. Nothing is sacred. Mm. No, no question is unaskable. And in our society right now, people are saying, "Oh, you can't ask what is a woman," you know. <laughs> 
and and uh, and and anything should be questionable. Nothing is sacred. Nothing. And and that you know, I used to argue uh, against religious fundamentalists about this now, but now I have to argue against uh, uh, social justice postmodernist oh, yeah. ideologues. And so, see, that's you, it's always asked. It's yeah, it's always reasonable to say, but what could that be wrong? So that's why we get back to what I said earlier. I don't know is so important, and you 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 said it. It's not just in science. It'd be we our society would be so much better if more people said, "I don't know." Politicians, teachers, parents, yes. and maybe I'm wrong. The reason no, people right don't want that. something to come out of the university campuses is that fear might offend them. But you know what? The, the free speech is not was not created so that to defend the rights of people who are saying what what you don't want to hear. It defends your rights to hear it because it might change your mind. Oh, I don't think I've ever heard that. Well, before. I first learned that from Christopher Hitchens, but he he he, that's he good. But he didn't invent that either. It was probably Hume or someone like Still, that. Still, that's really or, good. Or, yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's really important. Yeah, because you. I mean, you've spent so much for your life around academia, and I'm sure the the transformation that you've seen there, particularly over the last decade or so, has to be pretty jarring. No, it, it is. It's jarring and unfortunate, and I write about it, and it's it's really unfortunate. In fact, I have a piece coming out. This week, maybe in the Wall Street Journal, um, if they ever get around to editing the damn thing, <laughs> uh, that uh, you know there was before you were born again, probably there was a guy named Alan Sokol who uh, gave a spoof. He he was so he thought this postmodernist nonsense that was infiltrating humanities was so bad. He wrote an article claiming that quantum gravity, you know, it it, it was a, he sent it to a journal called Social Choice, which was one of these postmodernists journals that eventually became this, you know, social justice nonsense we're hearing now. And it was full of gobbledygook, gobbledygook about oppression and this and that. <laughs> and and he got it published. And then he pointed out later it was a spoof and it caused a great furor because mm. it's this distinguished journal in, in, in social sciences that accepted this nonsense. He wanted to show that the, that the whole field had no content. And my piece in in the in in the Wall Street Journal shows that unfortunately the same gobbledygook that was a spoof then is appearing now not just oh, in yeah. social science journals but in science journals. Yeah, and it's it it would never it would have been laughed off the it, scientists would have just ridiculed that crap now and now it's appearing in journals and institutions are accepting that nonsense. So yeah, I, it's pretty I, scary. You're in town right now to do an event with Nick Pope, who yeah. we just recorded with as well. Yeah. So I, your episodes are going to be coming out around the same time. But I'm going to be recording an episode with his wife, Elizabeth. Yes, who I've written in, about. Yeah, in a couple of weeks because of that whole – I mean she's an anthropologist who when looking at some found remains declared it to be – I believe it was female. Yeah. And then she was – Canceled because they're like, well, I, you don't know how that remain would have identified. Yeah, when they yeah, were, yeah I know you're not allowed like, to use sex when it comes to. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I know exactly. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I wrote a piece on the sex of skeletons and uh, based on her, on the fact that that was canceled from a from a meeting on the American Anthropological Nuts. Association. It's just utter garbage. And it, well, the problem is, it's the biggest threat to science because saying that you can't ask the question or can't even discuss certain things. Is the end of science? Yeah, I think it's that's that's what I mean because obviously, as you pointed out, there are plenty of scientists who are still in the space who are not treating science like a religion, like an ide like an yeah. ideology. Yeah. But it is creeping in even from the outside forces so much yeah. that we're getting to a point where that is the ultimate hack against religion throughout human history, and that they're like, well, this is how it is because this is what it says, and you can't ask any questions about it. 
Yeah, no, yeah, it's just it's. I gotta hit this and see what's. Oh, the what the fuck button. Hold on, I gotta, I gotta. Give no, you the, the reason, uh, that, the reason that I. Now you can edit. Yeah. Okay. I should have had that. No, I had a thing like that from that game where you hit it and makes noise. Yeah. Once I debated this Christian apologist named William Lane Craig, and I knew he'd he'd say so many lies and nonsense that I couldn't contradict him effectively. So I, I was in Australia. So I had that button. I told the audience every time he says something that's a lie, I'm going to hit it. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you how do you how do you determine it to be a lie? Versus... Because it's, it, a lie is something that disagrees with empirical evidence. Mm. That's so what out. kinds of things would he say? Oh, well, you know, I forget at the time, but I mean, well, first but we thing, can still see this on, this on probably. YouTube, right? Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. I think yeah. you probably that di- debate was real. The, it was three debates I did in Australia. Well, one thing I knew is I there was a movie about me and Richard Dawkins called The Unbelievers. Mm. Which he did a podcast about, or what the equivalent of a podcast was at that time, uh, about. But I knew he'd never seen the movie because it hadn't come out yet. So he talked about what we did, said, and did, and it, and then I, 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 and then I play a clip from the movie, and it was just totally different. So that's mm. called a lie. Mm. <laughs> that's gotcha. a simple lie. He'd lie about you know the, about what phys- what he would say. He'd use these highfalutin things about cosmology to argue that cosmologists. It, it implied that God had to exist, and and it does, and it, it and so oh, I would yeah, argue that, his, that he was uh, he was abusing physics and distorting it to to get the claims that he want to get the answer he wanted, but which when, is what people on, do. Hold on one sec. So he's talking about the Christian God in that way. Yeah, but yeah. Let, let me actually even pull it back from that and pretend he was just talking about like a God in general. Yeah, if this God of Spinoza or something. Yeah. If if you're lo- whatever it is, mm-hmm. some form Creator A, whatever mm-hmm. it is. When you're looking at things that are built in perfect, like almost symmetry and harmony throughout moving through a planetary system into the galaxies, into the universe, could could you see why you might think that something more perfect than us would have had to? I can make see why happen? people. Of course, I can see why yeah. people believe in God. Have believed in God as long as people have been people. Okay, mm. because it's a nice explanation of something you don't understand. Yes. But what we've learned is the real universe is far more fascinating than the than the than the little fairy tales of the Bible or what you pick your favorite religion. Uh, it's I mean it, so of course I can understand why people not only think there might be a higher being but want there to be because my goodness yes. it's a, being in a universe without any purpose is terrifying and with no one looking after you terrifying. But it's also but it's also exciting. That way. Well, but you know, it depends on your attitude. It's terrifying. And some people may say, well, if there's no purpose, why should I go on living tomorrow? And the yeah. answer is you make your own purpose. Okay? You, we make our own purpose in life, and we're here for this brief instant in cosmic time. And my goodness, how amazing is it to be able to look out at the universe and see 100 billion galaxies, to, to learn about mm. how, how life works, to experience love and all the rest. And so all of that is significant to us, but it has no cosmic significance. So, you, you know, it's but worth that's it. interesting. Yeah. You, you see, you have the perspective of how, I don't think you used the word there, but I'm going to put the word there, correct she, me if I'm wrong. Huh. You have the, the perspective of how lucky we are to have this opportunity, like you yeah. yourself living yeah. here it's at this time. It's a great, amazing coincidence, and, and I you enjoy have it. that without an idea of like a creator at the beginning. That's pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah, well, I think that's thank you, but I think it's the right attitude to to have, and it it doesn't make it makes life more. Look, I think it makes life more exciting to know that we have this unique accident to be here for a hundred years. Let's say if we're lucky, it makes every moment more precious than knowing it was somehow predestined to happen. It makes 
the opportunity, if you can experience the realities of the world, enjoy them, experience music and travel and, and all the things that we are fortunate enough to accidentally have. And it makes, to me, it makes it more precious rather than, there's no, there's a linguistic argument about loss of faith. And I think it's a problem. Some people, if they lose their faith, feel like there's a gap, but Mm. it doesn't have to. The world can be, there's no loss. It can be richer, not poorer. Mm. How do you look at emotion though? Whether it be, I look at emotion. I have emotions. I'm human. Happiness, sadness, love, hate. What about it? How do you? Why do we form that? What well, makes us probably, able to form well, that? Well, look, I, there's a. By the way, whenever we say why, we mean how, because why presumes purpose, okay? And and so what we really mean is how. And the answer is pro- evolution. Evolutionary psychology gives good, good arguments for why. Why it even gives good arguments for why you might believe in God. And in fact, you know, I, I've so? done I've done lots of podcasts. So I've you know I just did a podcast with my friend Robert Sapolsky about determinism, and and you can understand exactly the mechanism, I was going to say why, but how uh, neurobiological systems release certain hormones in order to, for survival, you know, and it evolves into an emotion. But why don't other, now we we, we do know that other species feel things, but why do certain species maybe not feel? How do you know they don't? That's a good question. Okay. And that's an important question. One of the reasons I'm a vegetarian. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, when it, but I I love I love watching nature videos and they're they're brutal. I I love watching yeah, the videos yeah. though where well, certain animals are hunting other animals. Yeah, well, so yeah, life is not fair. The, you, you know, the universe isn't isn't meant to make us happy, and and evolution isn't either. And to what do you mean mother, it's not meant to make us happy? Well, people like to think that the world is the way it is, or the universe is it, as it is, because another way would be worse. But the universe doesn't care. Mm. The universe doesn't care that there's going to be an asteroid that's going to destroy the Earth unless we do something about it. Just the way it is. In fact, one of the, uh, there's a film by a friend of mine, a, a director named Werner Herzog, called Grizzly Man, which you may or may not have Werner seen. Werner Herzog. Yeah. You don't know. I, you know it. You know do it. I know him? It's yeah, you do. That sounded like a Nazi Germany guy. I don't know. No, no, he's a great director. <laughs> I've been in two of his movies, so so I'm, I'm a big All fan right, of shout his. out Werner. But anyway, yeah, he's a great friend and a great director. One of the greats. But Grizzly Man was a great documentary, and I was actually a judge at Sundance, and we gave him an award for that movie. You were a judge at Sundance? Yeah, yeah. How the yeah. hell did you get that? I know why people always ask me. If I was Brad Pitt, would you ask me why I'm a judge at Sundance? I guess. Yeah, right. Anyway, um, so anyway... Uh, it, I would give, the word I was doing was related to science, so maybe there's more sense there. But it was called Grizzly Man. It's a great movie. It's about this guy who, who loved grizzly bears and lived with them for 12 years until he was eaten by one. Oh, yes. And, and, I, okay. Yes. Okay. But the best part of that movie is, is near the end when, he, when, he, when the camera close-ups on the eye, uh, eyes of, of this grizzly bear. And he said, you look at those eyes. I don't see. I, don't see, I can't be Werner. I'd love to say it. He has this great voice. I don't see love or hate or, or I see indifference. You know, basically it's saying Mother Nature ate Mother Nature. Mother mm. Nature wants to kill you, and don't pretend otherwise. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, it's a good message. Yeah, it if, is. It's true, because we, we anthropomorphize, we make it seem as if somehow the world... There, there we go, about yeah. Timothy Treadwell. What I loved about that movie, among many, besides the fact that Werner's an amazing filmmaker, is Timothy Treadwell could be a two-dimensional character, because he's kind of ridiculous. But Werner makes him into a three-dimensional character, and you can, uh, he admires him for many, many, uh, including his cinematography. All of the footage was Timothy Treadwell's. I mean, he took these foot, the, this footage over the, over the 12 years he was in Alaska living with, with, with uh, grizzly bears. It's an amazing movie. But he didn't... But Werner makes him... 
a real human character with with faults and strengths, and instead mm. of just being a stereotype. That's amazing. And, yeah, I gotta watch that. It is. It is great. Well, you've written you've written a lot about in the past about, and climate. you can watch out Werner's other movies that I'm into, by the way. No, okay. just going. Anyway, right, we'll plug. <laughs> anyway. well, you, you've written a lot about climate change and that argument there, and and I, I'm I'm thinking about that because it's all it's at the heart of a few things we're talking about. It's at the heart of you know how the how the planet evolves and how it can destroy itself. It's at the heart of humanity and whether or not we destroy ourselves in uh-huh. it. And it's also at the heart of the scientific issue that we're having right now, where sometimes it has to be, or a lot of times now it has to be everything or nothing and you either have to think that the planet's going to die tomorrow or you know that it's not dying at all and, and you deny it where how do you how do you rectify this in in our in our current landscape like what what do you, when when you talk about climate change what are your thoughts there and and what are we looking at well i wrote a book about it but um but i mean look climate Link change in description. is description what was i mean yeah, yeah, it's well. It, my book is more most importantly. I actually wrote it partly for my a friend of mine, magician Penn Gillette, who's a kind of a libertarian, and he he wants to know. And his point is that I don't want to be told what to do. Mm. I want to know what the facts are so I can make my own decision. So I wrote a book about the physics of climate change, which doesn't have policy recommendations. It's just so anyone can understand because it's not rocket science. The uh, fundamental physics of climate change is two hundred year old physics that we understand and it works. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to explain how it works. So climate change is happening, and it is anthropomorphic. It's, 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 it's human-induced, and it's happening. And there are certain implications that are unambiguous and undeniable. There are other things that are more speculative. One of the things that is going to happen, no matter what we do with fossil fuels, given the amount of energy, additional energy that has been absorbed by the earth due to due to the increase in carbon dioxide over say the last 25 years the oceans have heated up by something like 0.007 degrees celsius something like that. but the amount of heat in that is the equivalent of something like 3.5 billion hiroshima level atomic bombs five every second 24 hours a day for 25 years okay mm. now there's a, fun, there's a fundamental property of water, which isn't quantum physics. It's, it's high school physics. You heat water up, it expands. Mm-hmm. Now, when that heat is equilibrated in the oceans, it causes the oceans to rise. Sea level rise isn't just happening because glaciers are melting. The sea is getting hotter, and it's expanding. And just due to the expansion of what we've, the, the energy we put in over the last 25 years, no matter what we do, sea levels are going to rise by about a quarter of a meter in the next 25 to 50 years. Now, may, that may not seem like a lot to you, That's but when you lot. consider that maybe 100 million people on Earth live within, in places that are less than one meter above sea level. I mean, Plus. I wrote the book after visiting uh, the Mekong Delta in Cambodia and Vietnam, which is like a perfect storm for climate change. 50 or 80% of South Vietnam is less than one meter above sea level, okay? And, 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 and the Mekong River, which now supports 60 million people with fish and everything else, it... it it keeps out the salt water because you know it's strong enough and, and, and to keep the salt water from impinging on it. And it, when that salt water, when sea levels rise and it, that salt water overwhelms the Mekong, those right rice-rich deltas that that are the most productive rice-growing regions on the planet are going to turn into mangrove swamps. And and so those kind of things are going to happen. How do we how do we fix that? Well, we don't. I think we well things that are going to happen we can't fix directly but we can you know technology can do a lot the big problem of dealing with time climate change is not technology it's politics okay of course for example Holland 
Have you ever been there? I have. It's a wonderful no. place. Most of it's underwater. would be underwater if it didn't have dikes. Mm. Okay? Holland is a beautiful place to be, but, it's, but, it, but if, it, if technology hadn't intervened, much of Holland wouldn't be, wouldn't be there right now. Our Discord and Patreon links are in the description. We are starting to do AMAs on Discord. And we are also now releasing a new show called The Julian and Alessi Show with my producer, Alessi Aleman, on Patreon, along with some other exclusive content from episodes that we have been putting out on YouTube that are not seen on YouTube. And so there are ways to do it, but you have to have the foresight and willingness to, to, to address those technological challenges and the money. And mo- the problem is... Most of the places that are going to be affected are the places that didn't produce the climate change in the first place. But and and, it's, and, and if we want to help things, then the, then the first world is going to have to spend a lot of money on the third world, which I ain't mm. going to happen, unfortunately. And if it doesn't, the problem isn't going to just be, in my opinion, the problem isn't just going to be a lot of people losing, you know, being flooded out from where they live. It's when you have when you have not just a thousand or a hundred thousand climate refugees, but you have a hundred million. Mm. You got to wonder about the socio-political impacts of that. Oh, it's a lot. Yeah, and whether that's going to cause a war. That's going to cause, you know, in the Sudan, for example, a lot of the problems in Sudan happened because of a drought, where people move from the from the countries to the cities, and that uh, eventually produces civil unrest that caused a. And so, the indirect socio-political impacts of that are. potentially tremendous and i view those as much more serious than the physical devastations or negative impacts that are that may come from climate change yeah i i think to to your friend pendulette's point Mm -hmm. i think the issue a lot of people see with it is and it's hard to talk about this topic with yeah. people these days. Yeah, you it's know, hard especially to talk about a lot like of if exactly. But if you're nuanced, <laughs> if you're nuanced, we're finally getting used to that. Yeah, okay. If you're nuanced on it, like I would like to think I am, you know, it, it gets difficult to to pose these questions. But how do you do it without kind of virtue signaling in the first world to feel like you're doing something when and when in reality what you're doing is just telling people oh you got to use this fucking bendy straw that no one wants to use and that's going to save the turtles well look you know i i try not i i do try to tell not to i try to provide people evidence and knowledge and, and hopefully encourage them to make their own decisions so i try not to tell people how to live i'm a vegetarian partly because of reasons of climate change um, but it, there are other reasons, but th- there's no doubt that, that if we, more people ate in the worst world ate less meat, there'd be less, uh, uh, carbon dioxide put in the atmosphere, uh, for example. But, but then it, there'd be more, what? There'd be more available in the wild that would still get eaten. Well, I, I, okay. All right. All it's right, it's a complicated saying. issue. Yes. Okay. But the, but there are questions that you're worth asking. So. You know, when the problem with climate change, you hit the nail on the head in the sense is all of us seem so tiny that how can any of us impact on climate change? You know, what can I do? You know, and the answer is, yeah, there's some things I can do. I can, you know, eat lot eat meat. I can maybe travel less than I do or, or something like that. But uh, what I can do is try and educate people about the reality of it and the potential actions we can take. There's an old saying 
that if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. I'm an educator. And I happen to think that an educated populace produces a better democracy. So I, I can educate right people, that. and they can maybe elect politicians who actually base their policies on empirical reality instead of bullshit. But what politicians aren't owned by corporate? Look, you can, you, can, you can say it's all, it's never, look, no, what is true is whether you have a democracy or a dictatorship or a oligarchy or whatever, governments eventually respond when you have more than 3% of the population that's, that's actively willing to act on a certain issue, governments, governments never lead, they follow. And so what you can do is if, if it's in the interests of, if, let's say they're bought by the corporations, when it's the interests of the corporations for, to behave a certain way in order to appease the public, they'll yes. do that. Okay. And so what you can do is educate people. And when enough people are aware of the situation that if you're a politician – then acting in a certain way is not going to get you elected. You're not going to act that way. Yeah, but there's also – look, people still are going to, are going to operate on the what, how do I take care of my family? Of how course do I, they How are. do I get to do what I do? I mean, look, you're, you're, coming, from, you're coming from science, right? You are coming from a space with some – go ahead. Okay. I'm, yeah, I get – normally when I'm doing a podcast, people hate when I interrupt, but I'm the guest, so I get to interrupt. You now. do get to interrupt. Yeah, and, and so here's the deal. What you can – what people do care about – are their children and grandchildren. So you're right. I might not be able to say to you. And by the way, first thing I can say is that if we respond to climate change, it doesn't mean we have a, less, a worse standard of living. It may mean we have technologies that are even better. Some people like Tesla's better than, than sure. you know. So, uh, so it doesn't mean giving up our standard of life or, or other things. But, but what I can say is that your grandchildren and your children and grandchildren are going to live in a world where the sea level is maybe a meter higher. That means if you live in New York City, if, if we don't do a lot of stuff, if you live in Hoboken, forget it. Well, this is already a fishbowl. Yeah, here. exactly. Yeah. So, and, if, and people are kind of worried about, the, the would like, most parents would like the future of their children to be better than their own future yes. and their grandchildren. And maybe that's a way you get people to have their own myopic desires match with what, 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 what can be, what but we need to do. But there's always the syndrome of, oh, it won't happen to the next yeah, generation. It's that's three generations away. That's the same thing as evolution. It's hard, yeah. long time is hard to, yeah. is hard, and it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge, and whether we deal with it, it depends on the day. I, well, I'm, whether I'm optimistic, I'm usually pessimistic, but as a, as a well-known writer friend of mine who just died said, Cormac McCarthy said, I'm, I'm a pest. I asked him why he was so cheerful because he writes very dark books. Mm. And, and he said, I'm a pessimist, but that's no reason to be gloomy. I'm a pessimist, but... Oh, anyway, it's my, it's my mantra. On there. I'm a kind you. of a pessimist, but, but, you know, life is... You're we, more of a ball breaker. I think that's I, what well, you I try, yeah, I try to do that, too. Yeah, those yeah. three months in New York when you were a kid really rubbed off on you. I think so. They kind of, they yeah. kind of stayed yeah. there. Yeah, But I, at the core of it, though, is the simplest and most complicated thing simultaneously in our – not in our world, but in our society, and that is it, it does come back to money. People uh -huh. are – I mean, you know how it is. Look, how many brilliant physicists are there out there in, in this country? A lot. Right? And you're one of them. Maybe. And yeah. yet you guys, in order to do what you do, you have to have funding. Period. Yeah. End mm -hmm. of story. Mm -hmm. And you and all of your friends have had people over the years fund you. I mean, Epstein was a guy who funded a ton of physicists yeah, but and everything. Most of, but the dominant funding ever since but the Second But you don't control World that is the point. No, you don't, you control, don't control who does that. Uh, yeah, but the government yeah, – well, here's the deal. Here's the way it's worked. And it may, there may be – it's like democracy. It may be a crummer way of governing, but as Winston Churchill said, it's better than the, all, the, all the other ways. And so the, 
the kind of work I did, the particle physics, and even to NASA to some extent, is private industry can't fund it. There's, it's just not enough money, and the payoff is not is not close enough. So the government has to fund it. The government creates agencies like the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation. Those get run by scientists. And then when you when you do a grant proposal, it's peer-reviewed by other scientists. And so the system... Now, that's not to say scientists aren't biased and all the rest of the crap. It's not biased. It's but, that they have to get... They still have to get funding on top no, of that. I, no, but... The, but yeah, so they have to lobby Congress to, to fund. Who okay. pays them? Well, and the scientists, you know, I've used to visit Congress people when I was uh, more active in, 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 in a university environment and, t- and explain to them what was going on so that they would know why certain things should be funded and, you, and you hopefully try and convince them. But, of course, they're influenced by other, uh, other things. And so there are biases that come in, but the system on the whole actually works. On the whole, good science gets, has gotten funded. And we made progress. Just look at all the things that have happened. So you're right. There, may, there are impediments to rational and objective decision-making. But the system, especially a peer review, has, has traditionally worked when it comes to the funding of science. And, it's, and it, part of the reason is that, science, that, that you're not dependent on private industry. Now, things are changing. And you are seeing billionaires getting more yeah, involved. Yeah, it's been happening for a while. Yeah, yeah, and you are seeing them, but you can try and convince them to act rationally too. Well, it sucks because now society with this open source world where we all, it, well, this is great that we all kind of get to see things. Well, we also get that, to see things that don't exist in the open source world, but yeah. I mean, the sure. internet has been amazing, but there's more misinformation than there is information. Absolutely, okay. but what I'm saying is every person has to answer for everything that they've ever been around, even if yeah. they're not around it. Yeah. I have to sit there and I have to yeah, watch. It's bullshit. I ha- exactly. I have to watch guys like Pinker, like you, mm, yeah. answer questions about Epstein and mm. him funding stuff because mm. he was one of the mm. billionaires that did mm. this stuff. And in reality, to me, what it's always looked like, obviously it looks a little different for celebrities yeah, yeah, and things like yeah. that. What To me, what it's always looked like is you have people who come in and say, oh my God, I love that you're working on the origins, <laughs> Lawrence. Yeah. You know, what? what's it going to take for you to be able to find X, Y, and Z? Oh, well, you know, maybe 15 months. Here you go. You are incentivized to take that. Well, the point is that would you rather have the people you don't like, whether it's Epstein or the Koch brothers, would you rather yeah. have them funding uh, oil and gas industries, or would you rather have them funding people who were looking at the fundamental questions of the world? Would you rather have them spend money on good things or bad things? Now, that's, an, that's a real poison pill question. That's, that's yeah, an interesting question. Yeah, of course question. it is. But... What if they're trying to use their funding of those good things to turn it into bad things? Well, you, you can't – look. I mean the Koch yeah. brothers did that their whole well, lives. Well, you might say that about the government too. What Absolutely. if I pay taxes and the government's you know, building nuclear weapons? Well, that's true. But maybe I'm also paying taxes so that I have health care and, and I have police sure. and I have military that maybe is defense. So like, like life is just not – can't, I can't control the world. You know, it'd be great if I could, but, <laughs> but I can't. What I can do is try and have a positive impact. Absolutely. And I can have try and have positive impact by getting by one of the things I can do is if I think the things I'm working on are worth are worthwhile, I can try and convince people to support it. I may be biased and they can decide whether it's worthwhile. So that's all I can do, right? Yeah. Is there a way to in, even in the modern academic environment, though, because like historically we've always thought about the best research obviously happening in mm-hmm. academia, but that includes people, students who are on the come up. Yeah. It doesn't just include the professors yeah, and things yeah. like that. Is there a way to foster a better environment so that we kind of have a a more academic-led private side of society making making progress here? And here's a second part to this question. 
peer review, I agree, was was actually at its outset a great invention. But do we also have a problem where peer review is almost shutting things down? It is. Now? Absolutely. I, yeah, absolutely. I told you, it's like democracy. It's, it's the worst thing, but it's better than all the rest. Um, I I, th- I don't want academics to be uh, look. I I'm, many of my f- best friends are academics or or have been, and many people I know, and there are a lot of scientists I'd want to keep as far away from government as I can imagine, <laughs> and so and from the public, by the way, in the sense of they're just you know incom- they wouldn't communicate well. But um, so look, I think what all you can do is try and encourage people to ask questions, and be, keep an open mind. About, about being guided by empirical reality. Not a completely open mind, as the as former publisher of the New York Times has said, I, do, I want to keep an open mind, but not so open that my brains fall out. Oh, uh, yeah, that's but, a good one. But, but, but so all I want to do when I educate people is encourage them to ask questions and to be willing to change their minds. And if that happened more universally in our society, I think 95% of the problems in modern society go away. Mm. Real quick, I just have to go to the bathroom. I want to ask you about inflationary stuff, though, next. So we'll get to that. We'll be right back. Okay. Yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter, but I know I'm in. So and he's, yeah, he's, he's also supported, not my research, but he's supported some public things we've done once. once well, before. actually, if, if we're, we're back right now, okay. before I get to the inflationary okay. thing, because we were just talking about it off air for a second. So you, you have sat with Elon a little bit then? Yeah, I've been past? with him a few times. Yeah, yeah. How long ago was the last time you were with him? The last time I was with him was, I mean, we communicate by email, and last time I communicated by email with him was maybe a month or two. Oh, really? But but, but the last time I was physically with him was a while ago, probably around two thousand, well, probably at least five years ago. How legit, based on? I mean, we know where he is, obviously, in pop culture and how people look at him as a genius and everything, and I certainly do too. But how how legit do you think that is? And and like, the what do you work mean legit? He's, he's done some amazing things, but like, yeah. He's done, you know, he's done some amazing Tesla, SpaceX are just amazing. I agree. Okay. But, but, and I, people make the presumption that because people are extremely successful, they're also somehow extremely smart and know everything about the world. And the point is they're very good at what they do, but it doesn't mean they're very good at everything. And so I know a number of billionaires who are on that illusion too, just because they're billionaires that somehow they, they, you know, they can do anything. And the answer is they can do what they've done, and that's been very successful. But mm. but the same is true for science. The same is true for anyone. And so, you know, I I am skeptical, and I judge everything skeptically, and, I, and I'm based on the evidence. So Elon has done amazing things that I could never do and brilliant things that I could never do, but some of the stuff he says or does is stupid. So that's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely an odd communicator. And well, I think that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's kind part of the of price it. you pay for it, well, right? that's yeah, that that's genius? Part- well, I don't know. There's people I know who I like think are smart that could, that also could communicate, um, but it's not just that. I think it's you know, all, all of us have crazy ideas, and if you're Elon, then some those then some of those crazy ideas also because you have a, a platform be it publicized, mm. and so you just have to filter what everyone says. Just because someone, it, it, you just have to realize that everyone. It, it, it is wrong at times, yeah, right? And I perfect. am too. I told you that one time yeah, 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, speaking of being wrong, because this ties right into the topic of, of universal inflation, but 
I, I had a friend of yours, Brian Keating, in here yeah. recently, who mm-hmm. also is responsible for us talking together. Oh, but yeah, Brian, that's right. I, I I love talking with Brian. He's mm-hmm. he's so he's so enthusiastic about science. Yeah. He's so much fun. Mm-hmm. But he's done a lot of amazing work in his life, and and one of the things he has spoken and written about very openly is the fact that in some ways his granddaddy of them all project proved to not be what he was looking for. Yeah, and what he happens. Was, what he was looking for for around 15 years was he was trying to prove from experiments in the South Pole that the universe was inflationary. And he mm-hmm. felt like – or felt like he posits that if you prove that the universe was inflationary, that that would mean that the multiverse, which could mean a few different things – does exist. So what I wanted to ask you was, first, if you could just give people a, a quick rundown of what we mean when we say the universe is inflationary, and secondly, if, if you think it is. Well, yeah. Let me say the idea that if we could show that inflation happened, I actually wrote a paper on this. I was one of the people who did. You write about a lot of things. Yeah, well, me and a, a Nobel Prize winning friend of mine, Frank Wilczek, <laughs> wrote a paper showing that if you could, if you could measure what they were looking for, um, we proved that if you could measure what they're looking for, you could have indirect evidence that the multiverse existed, which is the best we'll ever have. But it'd be, it would turn metaphysics into physics because you could show that we'd have indirect evidence that was pretty incontrovertible that there were other universes. And it's an amazing thing, but you can show that. We'd also be able to prove that gravity was a quantum theory. Those are the two th- implications of that paper. And what do you mean when you say gravity is a quantum theory? It means it's quantum mechanical, that the fundamental variables of space and time behave under the rules of quantum mechanics. And if that's true, by the way, you can create a universe from nothing. But anyway, um, uh, the, 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 the multi... Inflation is the best theor- fundamental theory. We, it's the only... Let me say not just the best. In my opinion, it's the only theory based on well-defined physics that's testable that can explain why the universe looks the way it does, or rather how the universe looks the way it does, okay? It, it, without inflation, the universe that looks the way it does now that's 14 billion years old is, seems absolutely impossible. But with inflation, it happens naturally. And moreover, inflation is a phenomena that would happen almost invariably in the early universe, given the laws of physics as we know it. How, what do you mean by that? So, okay, so that inflation... Okay, we got to step back now. Let's do it. Yeah, step I know. Away. Okay, yeah, yeah. Squeeze with your hands. We're going to need to work hard. Okay, um, so uh, inflation is based on the idea of what's called a phase transition. So let's say it's a cold day here in Hoboken. It's below thirty-two degrees. Okay, and it's and and it's been raining before that, and the ground is full. The streets are full of water, right? But the water is nice yet because it's, it's rush hour. And the cars are, are, are traveling through and knocking the water around and keeping, you know, stopping it from freezing. Then after rush hour, suddenly the water freezes because it's below 32 degrees and the preferred state of water below 32 degrees is ice. Mm-hmm. When the water, when it's below 32 degrees and the water really wants to be in ice, when, it, when the water becomes ice, it releases energy. Okay? Now, so... It's in this phase called a false, uh, and it's not in the ground, true ground state. It's not in the state it wants to be when it's below 32 degrees and it's still water. The lowest energy state of water at below 32 degrees is ice. Mm-hmm. That's, why, that's why ice forms, okay? But you can stop it from forming ice if you do things like stirring it constantly and things like that, okay? Got me? 
but because it wants the ice is the lowest energy state, that means the water contains more energy than it would have if it were ice. And it, when it when it becomes ice, it releases energy. Yes. Okay. Got Makes me. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, as the universe cools down, in the big, big Bang, it can get stuck in what's called a false vacuum, a false ground state. It can get stuck, just like the water does, in a state that isn't quite the lowest energy state for a little while, okay? And then it can release that energy, and, and, and everything can heat up, and you can have a Big Bang, like we've seen, okay? So if the universe exists in that false vacuum state, what happens? It means energy is trapped that would later on be released, where does that energy exist? It exists in empty space. There's nothing there, but that space has energy. It's allowed, okay? But if you put energy in empty space, it's gravitationally repulsive, not attractive. You know from high school that gravity sucks, right? Yes. Okay. When you put energy in empty space, it blows, okay? <laughs> it, 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 it causes, and so it, that causes the universe to expand exponentially fast, and during a very short time, the universe can, an unbelievable a time period of, say, a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second, the universe can increase in size by 40 orders of magnitude. Mm. It's incredible. And then, and then if that energy, if that phase transition happens and that energy is released, all of that energy goes into particles and radiation and heats up the universe and all the rest, and then, you, you know, the universe can evolve. That's inflation. It turns out if that, if the universe expands by 40 orders of magnitude in that short time, you can explain why the universe is so uniform on large scales. Mm. You can explain why it looks flat today, why it has all the properties it has. So this phenomenon that we think can happen naturally in any theory that has a phase transition, and most of our theories of particle physics involve such a phase transition, inflation will happen. The hard part is not getting inflation to happen. The hard part is getting it to stop. Because and how would you, how would that happen? Well, it turns out in most, if we're right, in most of space, it hasn't stopped. There are little pockets of space, like snow, like snowflakes that fall in the or rain drops. You get a little pocket where 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 the water condenses. In a little pocket, what's called a pocket universe in these theories, actually, the, the phase transition occurs locally, and when that little occurs locally in that region, you get a you get a hot big bang. But most of space is still inflating. And that means other regions may, may not yet have had a hot Big Bang. And, and, and may, maybe to, at this instant, there's another universe that's, that, that's leaving in the inflationary state and only a beginning... Whole a, yeah, a whole separate universe. Yeah, be, a whole separate in the sense that it's causally disconnected from us because the space between us is expanding faster than light. And, On a different time pattern. Well, well, no, they're all in the same time. But 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 it, but it could be. But it might not happen now. It might happen a billion years from now. It might have happened a trillion years ago, and if inflation was happening on a large scale, and that means, and that's the origin of the multiverse. Okay, Each but of those, real quick before you go on, does, are you saying then that that universe exists on a parallel plane of a, of a similar idea of what we're doing, but it has a different outcome because it's on a different schedule? Or well, did I totally miss? Sort that? of, but you're making it sound more metaphysical than it is. It's just a different region of of a vast space, which we now call the multiverse, which m had a big bang that happened earlier or later. And what you can also show in inflation is that when you leave the, in this false vacuum state, the state you can go into can be different. It's like snowflakes. 
Every snowflake looks different, right? Mm-hmm. And so imagine the universe of being like all these multiverses, these different universes being like snowflakes that condense out of this background inflationary state, okay? That may go on for an infinitely long time, and that means an infinite number of snowflakes can form, okay, mm-hmm. over time. But in each of them, the laws of physics can be slightly different. And if the laws of physics are slightly different in each universe, then you can say that some features of our universe that seem really strange, if the, in fact, if the energy of empty space were any different than it is now, by a significant amount, life wouldn't have evolved. Life wouldn't have formed. There would have been no life. So you might say, that's really weird. It looks like our universe was created so we could exist. But instead, you can think of it as a kind of cosmic natural selection. Mm. We exist in our universe because we can exist. It would be really amazing to find ourselves living in a universe in which we couldn't exist. That would be really yeah. amazing. And so it could be that life, the universe, life evolved to exist in a universe in which it can exist. There may be other universes that have, that have, that have uh, uh, separated out from that, that have condensed out of that background inflationary state where the laws of physics are different and no life can exist. There can be no galaxies and no stars. Or there may be universes with very different laws of physics where different things could exist and different kinds of life could exist. And so it's possible, but, but you get to the point where if there are over an infinite amount of time, an infinite number of universes, then you have all this craziness that infinity allows. Mm. There could be a universe that exists where, you know, everything is the same as our, as our universe and the earth is here, but I'm interviewing you instead of you interviewing me. Yes. Okay. And yeah, when you allow in, for infinity, anything can happen, but that's kind of metaphysics, you know. Okay. Well, let's get into the deeply theoretical then, which is, you know, obviously completely okay. in any way, not even proven fake or real or anything. But like I've heard you talk about the multiverse as two potential separate ideas, a multiverse and I may yeah. mess up the language here, so just correct me afterwards, but a multiverse that unlocks all the way up to 11 dimensions or unknown dimensions or a multiverse that exists into a fourth or fifth dimension that just has all kinds of, I guess, like onion-like layers to that dimension. How does... Well, that's a different multiverse. That? Okay? Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, can you unpack and, and, that? Yeah, well, there are, I mean, the, the multiverse from inflation, I view, is incredibly well-motivated because inflation is likely the explanation of, why, of how the universe became to look like it is here now. And if inflation happened, there's almost certainly a multiverse conflation produces. That's one kind of multiverse. That's different universes that are separated in space by an amount f- farther than we can ever see. Is it like the is it like the multiverse that say Philip K Dick wrote about in The Man in the High Castle? That type of thing where it's different realities of the same set of circumstances? No, that's well I mean not really. Uh, um, in the sense that these are just different universes in different space. You draw a big map of the multiverse. There's a universe here, there's a universe there, there's a universe here, the universe there. They might be different, they might be the same. If there are enough of them, yeah, there could be a, a, two of them that are almost identical, okay? But they're, so, they're separated by, such, by distances larger than light will ever be able to travel, and therefore they're never connected. There's never, they're never causally impacted by each other. But that, so that's just different universes separated in, in, in three-dimensional space four-dimensional, but three-dimensional space. But the universe you're talking about, which is the multiverse you're talking about, arises in theories like string theory, mm. where you, which assume there are extra dimensions, for which, by the way, we have no evidence whatsoever. Right. Okay? Important to point that out. But if there are extra dimensions, then, yeah, if there are seven dimensions and we're, we live in a four-dimensional universe, then, you know, on the, then... then in, in an infinitesimal distance in that extra dimension at the edge of our nose in another dimension, there could be a whole other universe 
that has, you know, that may be four-dimensional, maybe seven-dimensional. Is that where the idea of where it's, like, tuned just right that I was talking about a little bit ago? Well, the idea comes in both. If you have many universes and the laws of physics are different in those universes, then this idea of fine-tuning happens naturally. It's called the anthropic principle. The Mm. idea is if there are many different universes and the laws of physics are different in each, it's not surprising to find ourselves in a universe which looks like it's fine-tuned, not because the universe is fine-tuned for us, but life is fine-tuned for the universe in which it exists, Mm. just like Darwin. It looks like life is fine, that the earth is fine-tuned so life can exist on it. Well, it's the other way around. The life life evolved because it could, and the only life forms that don't go extinct are those that appear perfectly fine-tuned for their environment because they know how to get food and they know how to reproduce. It looks like there was divine creation, but instead it was the finches learning to have the right, I mean, evolving to have the right beaks to be able to get the prey that they needed uh, in the island and the Galapagos that they lived on. If that were proven to be true, would it be possible in your estimation, I guess theoretically, completely, to traverse traverse across? No. No. No, in, in string theory... And in in the in the inflationary multiverse, those universes are separate and essentially forever will be. So there's you no would way. Not there's no. The, it would like what Philip K. Dick wrote about would not be possible. No, just like the and the many universes in Star Trek. You, you know, in quantum mechanics, some people like to talk of many worlds theory. It's usually bullshit. But but um, uh, I mean the language is the idea. I know where it comes from. But the, but the point is, you never can jump between those. <laughs> It's a law of physics that you're stuck on one quantum trajectory. So are you saying there's no such thing as time travel? That's no. making a stretch. No. I'm okay, saying it's so extremely unlikely. Extremely unlikely. But that's yeah. not a no. But I don't, need, I don't need I don't need another one one of the ex, one of the resolutions of the time travel grandmother paradox is that I got to go into another universe, right? The grandmother paradox uh, you go back in time and kill your grandmother before your mother was born. I don't know why you do. You're sick. But, but that but, would create but, a different... But hold on. Okay. Yeah, but, but, but let me explain to people who don't know why that's a problem. Okay? I killed, you kill your grandmother before your mother was born. That means your mother was never born. But if your mother was never born, then you were never born. If you're never born, how did you go back in time and kill your grandmother? Okay? That's a problem. Gives you a headache if you're a physicist. Okay? That's why most physicists don't think time travel is likely. But one of the, one of the possibilities is, that's been proposed as we out is somehow... When you go back in time and kill your grandmother, you end up in a different reality than, the, you know, a different plane of existence, if you want, than the one before you traveled in time. So in that universe, it's like the fam- all the Star Trek episodes. You change the future. The pa- you change the past. The future changes. You come back to the future. It's a different future. Mm. Okay? And, See, that's where you have an yeah, issue. And, and, that, and that, you know, so, so yeah, that. And who knows? But... But given the laws of physics as we understand them, time travel is extremely unlikely. I, I wrote about this in my book, The Physics of Star Trek, and, and Stephen Hawking wrote the foreword for that book for me. And he had Shout said, out Steve, RIP. But so he had he'd said that time travel is impossible because we'd already be inundated by tourists from the future. In fact, he had a party But once. would you know it? Well, here's what he did. He said he had a party, and he invited tourists from the future to it. No one showed up. What if they? What, but what if they did show? No, and, 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 no, but they didn't. And so, and so, How do you know they didn't. Well, because he. Can you it, prove we, it? They didn't have any. No one drank the punch. 
But um, <laughs> but or did they? And it still remained gravitational. I came there. up with a better argument against it. Okay, I let's said, hear it. You can't say time travel is possible because the maybe the the because the, the tourists of the future would all go to the 1960s and no one know, would notice. You weren't around in the 1960s, but yeah, I it was, was a hell of no, a time. I heard. Yeah, but. I know, I know. So that would be the play. They wouldn't want to visit now. They'd visit the 1960s, and no one would have noticed if they were weird. And so, so, but anyway, the point is, time travel produces a lot of paradoxes that physicists haven't resolved. And we don't have any, and all of the theories as we understand them don't allow you to create a configuration that would allow time travel, even though general relativity allows for it in principle. And the question is, do the quantum properties of gravity allow you to create the conditions of time travel? And the answer is, we don't know. It's an open question. So it's not impossible. But if you go, so I had the great Michu Kaku in here, who I know you're a huge fan of. Uh But if you look at the way he talks about like the Abraham Lincoln experiment, it's very similar to what you're talking about with your grandma thing. But he's like, theoretically, it would have to be some sort of, or would most likely be, I should say, some sort of river of time in the sense that if you could do it and you went back to Ford Theater in 1865 yeah. to stop Lincoln from being yeah. shot, yeah. you would not be changing the reality in the mo- in the part of the multiverse that you come from. You'd be changing the reality of a different, now separated It, it, it sounds good, universe. doesn't it? Like a lot of things people say, but it doesn't make it right. In fact, there's no good argument that I know of that... that, that there's would... no good argument for no, that. No, that doesn't mean... It's all theoretical. That... Well, that we do, it's, it involves physics that we don't understand, and, it, and it's totally unmotivated, in my opinion. So, yeah, it's possible, but, you know, maybe pigs can fly. I, I need Lawrence and Jack Sarfati in a room before I die. Oh, no, I you die. don't. No, you don't. I need it. I need it injected in my veins. The yeah, two of well, you would I, be incredible. Have you done that with him before? No, I, I'm on a mailing list that he, that he will not take me off of. <laughs> He has the best Twitter. He just takes, he'll take emails that, yeah. that like, were big back and forths and copy and paste the yeah. entire thing and send it as a yeah. tweet. It's the greatest thing ever. I did ask to be removed once, but I never did. <laughs> My buddy Danny Jones went out to San Francisco with him a few months ago and did a two-part podcast. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life. But that guy, you you don't remind me of him, like how you. you guys communicate. <laughs> I, I knew you'd say that. But the the some of the excitement you'll get or or upsetment you'll get at, at certain things in science, that part's a little bit similar. I just think it'd be sure. funny because you guys would have some obviously very different ideas about how things are. So yeah, and I'm right, and, and you're right. He'll say the same thing. I'll be like, Fuck of course you. he will. Fuck of course you, he will. I'm right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Of course he will. But you know, anyway, people can be entertaining, but that doesn't mean they're right. That's true. Okay. But you know, and he, you should, and that works for everybody, myself included. Sure. But when you're talking about this stuff, it, it does always go to, especially now with Twitter and, and the internet and everyone wondering about the meaning of everything and asking questions about what really is. All these questions of the multiverse and how it could work or things like that, they do always come back to aliens and extraterrestrial life. Well, like they, and for some people, they always come back to it. They don't for me, but anyway... Well, they don't. But well, they don't for you. Well, no, no, they do in the sense that yeah, we live in a big universe. Is there likely to be life elsewhere? Absolutely, just not coming here. Why do you say that? Because everything we know about physics says it's, there's no reason. There's no ability to do it. No reason to do it. How and no we, evidence for it. But it's everything that we know about physics. What if there's no? A... You don't understand. Here's the point. Okay. There's a lot we don't understand about the universe. More we don't understand than we do. But there are some things we do understand. And what people don't realize is that no matter what we learn about the laws of physics a million years from now, if I take a ball and let it go here on Earth, it's going to fall according to Newton's laws. It doesn't matter what I know about quantum gravity. 
what what is important is that the new physics that we learn in the future will not contradict the stuff that's already survived the test of experiment. Mm. It may mean that we have to refine it. So sure, Newton's laws have to get refined when you go very fast. You need relativity. Or when you go to the very small, you need quantum mechanics. But on the scale of you and me and the Earth, cannonballs will be always be described by Newton's laws, as will rocket ships. So nothing about quantum gravity that I learn will suddenly say, yes, I'll suddenly know that when I release this ball on the surface of the Earth, it's going to fall up. That ain't ever going to happen. Never. And so we never. couldn't change it in some never, way. Because it con- it, because to do so would contradict the experiments that, you, that have already validated. So, so here's the idea. So when people say, well, physics that we don't understand could change everything, it isn't going to change the stuff that we know works, okay? And it isn't going to suddenly say I can travel faster than light, or better still, it isn't going to say that balls are suddenly going to fall up. It's not going to allow you to create configurations that violate the known laws of physics. They can violate the unknown laws of physics, but they can't violate the known laws. And that's why in, in, in the Physics of Star Trek, in a book I wrote afterwards, the Beyond Star Trek, I talk about, for example, one of the ways people think they've seen alien spacecraft is they, is they don't behave like, like, like uh, uh, aircraft, you know, like conventional aircraft. They suddenly make right-angle turns and are going really fast. One of the ways you might know that you saw an alien spacecraft is it behaved exactly like, like normal aircraft because those obey the laws of physics. If I were traveling twice the speed of sound and I made a right-angle turn, the G-forces you'd experience would be the sim- same as about what you'd experience if a plane a, a few thousand feet above the Earth's surface suddenly lost power and crashed into the Earth. The moment it crashed, the G-forces would be the same as you'd experience in that Planes don't look good afterwards. Now, you might say, okay, well, they have yeah. advanced materials that don't, they don't, you Mental know. Materials. Okay, yeah, but maybe the, but the aliens inside, <laughs> forget the materials, the aliens inside wouldn't look very good. I mean, I, in the physics of Star Trek, I pointed out that every time Jean-Luc Picard said engage, he was committing suicide. Because, you know, even he wasn't traveling a warp drive, just impulse drive. When you, let's say you're in a Tesla, and I'll get paid by Elon Musk for saying that. All word. right. Yeah. No. Anyway, I hope he's paying uh, well. Yeah, yeah. He can no, afford it. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's say you're in a Tesla and you're in in uh, ludicrous drive. Okay, which I've unfortunately been in once. But um, uh, and you get pushed back in your seat, right? So if I'm accelerating forward at a, at the same rate as I would fall accelerate downward if I jumped uh, off a chair, okay, I would I would be pushed back in my seat with a force called one g equal to my own weight. Mm-hmm. If I'm accelerating at twice that rate, I could push back with the force of 2 Gs. So I would feel as if I was twice as heavy. Like, mm. okay, 3 Gs, I feel like two people were sitting on my chest, okay? Some people are used to that, others aren't. But, but uh, the point is that's about a, the maximum rate of G-forces G that people can experience for a long time. You know, up to 10 Gs before you go, go be unconscious, the Apollo astronauts appeared. But the space shuttle astronauts... Three Gs, okay. But what if they've figured out things that can that can just just, just hold okay. on a second. All right. Okay, I'm holding. This is a force, right? So 700 Gs is like a 35 ton weight hitting you. Okay, That's a lot. I can tell you that no matter what you tell me about quantum gravity, if I take a 30 ton, five ton weight and I slam it into you, you're not going to be talking yeah. to me about quantum gravity after right. it happens. Right. Okay, and so. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. So, uh, you, you know, why would you why would you invent something, if you even if you could, that would destroy effectively destroy everything in it? What's the point of having a sudden right angle turn except to get people to make interesting UFO stories? Okay, if you were, and not only that, 
if you're developing an alien spacecraft to come visit the Earth for some reason, since, since no one knows we exist beyond 100 light years from now, uh, 100 light years away, because we've only been emitting radio signals for 100 years or so. So, so no one no, on a star more than a few hundred light years away knows there's intelligent life on Earth anyway. But they could want to go out and look if they're way far ahead. Yeah, no? I know. Yeah, I could look at where it's a big galaxy. Right, so let's say huge. by accident they stumble upon us, right? They've built a spacecraft that, that, that spends 99.9999% of its time traveling through space. But they develop something like a flying saucer, which is meant to be aerodynamic in the atosphere of the Earth, which they didn't even know was there until they get here. But why would they, they design other things a, that they could simulate to but, do that? But, but why would they design a spacecraft, a, a flying saucer, if you wish, which is not the most effective way of traveling through interstellar space... Why would you develop an object that's perfectly designed for our atmosphere if you're just randomly building? Look, the NASA at the time or the Elon Musks of the time are not going to spend their money fine-tuned to develop something for a specific system that they don't even know exists. They're going to develop a rocket that is best designed to travel through space. Unless they do know it exists because they have access to it and we don't. How How do they have access to what? I mean, Elon's funded by no, the no, government. No, 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 yeah, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, but the point is, the laws of physics tell us, here, here's the thing. If you wanted to, if you wanted to travel to the Earth at, 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 if you wanted to build, you know, use warp drive, and yeah, there it looks great, okay? <laughs> Fine. What are, is this the Nimitz yeah. that you're pulling up, the video on the screen? Yeah, great. So how do, how do you explain this? I don't have to explain it. Why don't I, you I, have to? Lawrence, no, 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 you're no. Here. You have to no, explain no. it. No, no, I can just say that that it, that whatever it is, it ain't an alien spacecraft because all, because any possibility other than an alien spacecraft, given the laws of physics as we understand them, is more likely. As Richard Feynman once said, aliens and UFOs are more likely due to the known irrationality of humans than the unknown rationality of aliens. Because any wait, wait, wait. anything Unpack I can see, wait, say that again. Aliens, UFOs are more likely exist in our minds due to the known irrationality of humans rather than the unknown rationality of aliens. You can see things that are strange. I could do the magic tricks I was going to do for you, and you would see things that are mystical and amazing. But I could tell you they're not happening. You're just, sure. you're fooled. Seeing is not believing. Seeing is not, is not the best evidence that something really happened. Okay, you have to do, you have to do other tests, and there's no empirical evidence whatsoever that aliens have visited. I know you're turning it down because I'm yeah, yeah, speaking yeah. loud. No, it's good. But it's there's good. no empirical evidence that that and we've been visited by aliens. Moreover, the laws of physics as we know them tell us it's it's incredibly unlikely. If you wanted to travel here in a spacecraft like that, tra- at anywhere near the speed of light from in a star system, distant star system, you'd have to harness more energy than the power output of the sun. Okay, now, let's okay, say you could okay. do that. Would you come here all this way, harvest the, pow- the, the power of the entire sun to come all the way here just to abduct, abduct psychiatric patients of a Harvard psychiatrist and do weird kinky experiments well, on Well, I have very, very, very strong feelings about a lot of the experiencer stuff. Yeah, and okay. I think And I think even if you look at some of, like, Dr. Gary Nolan's work mm-hmm. and stuff like that, there's some explanations there. And everything that don't have to be aliens, well, for sure. Well, not only just anything. Swamp gas. 
What, give it any explanation you get. A weird reflection from the sun or a balloon or something that looks like it, it's a weird angle and you capture it and, you're, and appears to be going faster than it is. No matter how ridiculous the explanation, it's like the magic bullet and the kill, kill. Yeah, ridiculous. Kidding. But almost anything else is more ridiculous. And it, 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 so, I mean, yeah, so, let me say, anything else there. is less yeah. ridiculous than assuming it's aliens. Yeah, that, no, I, I know what you're saying. There's... So it's just things are likely or unlikely. And I'm a scientist and I say almost any, any explanation I can come up with is less ridiculous, given the laws of physics that I understand. Right, than saying the it's laws out, of physics that you understand. The laws of physics that have been tested, that we know. That given, the known, given the known laws of physics, but I repeat to you, you're... Your mistake is to assume that the unlaws of, unknown laws of physics violate the known laws of physics. That doesn't happen. How do, but how do you know that doesn't happen? Because they would be violated now. If, I, if the unknown laws of physics told me a ball fell up, every now and then I'd let the ball go and it would fall up. It, okay? It's not, what, it, what, what I learn on, about right, is not going right. to change what has survived the test of experiment. But what if it is falling up and we just don't know it yet? <laughs> You know, there's a bridge I could sell you going, <laughs> going to New York, and I can sell you for a million dollars this bridge if you want to buy it. Okay. Okay? You can have it. You can put a toll booth on it. You can make tons of money. Just give me a million dollars now, and it's yours. Okay. So what, what do you think, then, of all this? Because, by the way, I, I'll, I'll show my hand here. I, I do have some, you know, my, my tingly senses are going off with okay. some of the disclosure stuff uh, we oh, see. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, yeah, disclose, yeah, you should. That's the other thing that makes it implausible, more implausible than laws of physics, <laughs> that our government could hide a secret like this for 50 years when any one individual could make a gazillion dollars by throwing a piece of evidence. Yeah. Not talking about it to Congress or saying that you heard about it from someone else. But if someone, if you, you think our government could keep a secret like that, if someone... It, I know I look. I know how the government works. I know a scientist. That's more implausible to me than the alien spacecraft think, thing. Listen, I think you have an argument there. I, I I do. I think about that a lot. Like how many people? When you think about like the conspiracies and stuff, how many people would have to be in on it yeah. with not one fuck up, not yeah. one person you forgot yeah. to kill because they weren't yeah. going to listen it, to your exactly. blackmail, right? Yeah. It gets too, tough. Too much money in to be made for. For it to not, you know, to be kept secret. It gets Government tough. can't keep stuff secret. It's just ludicrous. And, and, and you got to ask yourself, when you hear someone say these things, what's in it for them? No, what's in it for question. someone who can testify before Congress that someone told him he's seen their, their, their cousin had a friend <laughs> who, who, who was in the room during an alien autopsy? Okay, I mean, come on. Did you see our recent podcast? I feel like you watched it. I don't watch it. We were dealing with it. Can I borrow you for an extra fifteen minutes? We were, ha we're having such a great convo, Lawrence. Ten, I'll give. I'll, I'll, I'll give 215. you ten. Two fifteen. All right. Two seventeen. Five. five. Two eighteen. No. All right. Well, we're definitely gonna have to bring you back and everything. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm if, sorry. If, if, I do if have an event, not... and I have to be. Oh, I, I know, have to. I, know. I have to do do something before that. It's just essential. I feel. I feel you 100. I mean, I would love to spend another hour here, and I'll come back. I know. You'll we're, fly we're me back to. first class, and I'll be Fuck back. Yeah, we'll yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah well, you'll pay for it. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what? What's the? When you go to write a book, because you've written a lot throughout your life, and you've done it, like we focused a lot on your whole focus on um, something coming from nothing. But when. When you've done it across the board, like you've done a lot of different types of topics and you've written like to think a so. ton of papers. How do you decide to sink your teeth into things? Because it seems like your interests scientifically span almost the entire span of it in a way. Well, they do. Everything interests me. 
And so I do stuff because it interests me. That's the final answer. I mean, you know, I don't do, and all scientists are that way to the first part. We're not trying to, I'm not trying to save the world in my science. I do stuff that I like. Mm. And the world, how could you not be interested in everything that's going on? In the I world? wonder that too. And but when so I was a kid, I was People wasn't. ask me, how can you, and the answer is, how can't you be? And so I like to think, there's, I mean, I'm motivated in, in well, I'm motivated in my science and what, what do I think will address the most fundamental unknowns in the universe. That most waits me there. In my writing, I try and think about what might interest the public in thinking about the amazing features of our world. And, and so that leads me in a lot of different directions. And that's why I've written a lot of different books. So it's easy to write the same book over and over again. Uh, I know people who've done it. And I know you mentioned one or two people here who've done it. And, and I think I think I'll, I'll I'll go back against that. I think Mitri's written about a lot of different things. Personally. It's all we well, anyway. Let's let's <laughs> let's not go in there. Um, let, let, let's go. He has e- equally authoritatively. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, <laughs> it's not like that. Come on. Anyway, um, he's a good guy. anyway, he's a nice guy. And 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 let me say that. Um, and uh, um, <laughs> but but. What I try and do is pick a topic that, you know, I know something about, but that I may not know a lot about. So for me, it's a learning experience often as well as, and so that's one way I can ensure that the the subjects are different. If I reach beyond my comfort zone, I mean, the climate change book, I'm not a climate scientist. Right. But my my thought was, if I, as a trained physicist, cannot explain climate science in a way that people can understand it, how can I expect anyone to? And so that was, and it was a great, and I would, the pandemic was on, I had nothing else to do. Mm. I wrote that book in in 10 times more quickly than any other book I've ever written because I had wow. nothing. 18 hours a day, I had nothing to do uh, but that. I had no interruptions, no travel, no nothing. Um, but, you know, so, and the Star Trek book came out by, by accident. I, you know, I was, I was, when I taught at Yale and, and I went in New York, often I was talking to my editor from my previous book and her daughter was a Trekker. And she, what tre- about, is that what they call them? They used trekker. to call them Trekkers. I don't know what they call them anymore. Were you a Trekker? Uh, you'd first be Trekkie. Trekkie. No, I wasn't anything. I was no. I just well, I watched every episode of Star Trek when I was younger, but I also watched Bonanza and everything else. I just William watched Shatner a lot of, believes in aliens, by the way. I, William Shatner and I have talked many times. You can watch our podcast together. Oh my God, I got to see that. Yeah, it's a great. I didn't know you it's had a, that. Oh yeah, Bill, Bill's come on a podcast. We've been together. That's awesome. He's my, he's my pal. And um, so you're still friends. You disagree and you're friends. Look uh, well, at that. you can disagree with Love people. That. And, you know, and I, tr- yeah, you, of course you can uh, disagree with people, friends. I, my friend Christopher Hitchens taught me that a lot. But, but um, Bill is amazing. So he's, he's a, a hoot. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. We did it. Well, it doesn't matter. I won't tell you the story. Um, next podcast, I'll tell you the story. Okay. But uh, um, what were we talking about before you so rudely interrupted me? Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I got you off that. You were talking about the, the Trekkie versus... Oh, Trekker. Yeah. yeah. It used to be called Trekkers, Star Trekkies, Trekkers. But she said, what about the Star Trek? And I laughed. And I took the train back to, to New Haven. And I started thinking, well, how would I make a transporter? And then I started to think of all the fascinating science you, you could, you know. And then, then I thought, I don't want to write this book because I don't want to alienate like 100 million Star Trek fans. I don't want to write a book that says, this is wrong, this is wrong. I, I did agree to write that book. And then I thought, how can I do that? It took me a long time when I realized, well, what I can do is I can take something on Star Trek that resembles something in the real world and, sh- and talk about the real world. So I can use Star Trek as a hook to talk about the physics of the real world, which is far more fascinating than the physics of Star Trek. So I talked about time travel, talked about warp drive, talked about lots of different things, uh, transporters, um, and, and, and I, I use it as a hook because people are intimidated by physics. If you go to a party, party and, and you tell people you're a physicist, they'll say, how about those Yankees? <laughs> yeah. Okay? 
And, and whereas if you say, but what about you know, time travel or warp drive? And then people, they don't realize they're interested now in they science. Perk up. Yeah, then they perk up. Right. So use those as hooks as a way to, to talk about the sciences. And so I try and, I try and think of ways that I might reach uh, the public in ways that they're interested in that allow, that allow me to talk about fundamental science or science of interest. So lots of different ways, and that's really the origin behind the 12 books I've written. See, so that's on. huge, though, because what you're talking about is, is the difference between simplicity and complexity in a complex world, because mm-hmm. you have to be able to explain it to the fifth grader in a, in a basic term to get them to want to go deeper. And I think that's the biggest problem a lot of us had when we were mm. teenagers yeah. in high school. They didn't really do that, you know? Well, it's also a challenge. Einstein said you, you don't understand it if you can't explain it to a fifth yes. grader. And I found... Many times in my in writing books that I thought I understood something till I tried to explain it in a book, and then I realized I never really understood it. Wow! And so it's and that's fun that's for profound. me. Profound. Yeah, it's so profound that I think it's a good way to end this episode. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm catching. I got one more question for okay. you because because uh-huh. you touched on it earlier. But have you done any work at all in the past that you're allowed to talk about vis-a-vis maybe consulting with NASA? I mean, there's nothing I, that, that I've ever done that's classified. Okay. So, so uh-huh. there's nothing that I've ever done that so I can't talk about. So, have you consulted with NASA? Um, uh, I have. Yeah. Well, I mean, what do you mean consulted NASA? I've been. I've. I've have NASA grants. Ooh. I've also. I've also. Uh, I've also. Um, uh, DARPA, which is a Defense Department agency, asked asked me to and a, and a not friend of mine, but I said to look at various proposals for basically. Um, you know, anti-gravity devices and show they were all wrong, okay? I mean, so, so yeah, but... Show they were wrong. Well, I didn't, they wanted, they wanted to know if any of the, it was on different things, but it was basically asked us to look at crazy proposals, and we looked at them and explained why they were crazy. When was this? 20, 30 years ago. You think all those sharks that are biting people might be DARPA sharks? <laughs> That's like the working theory we have. Now. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. But so I've, I've never had, a, there was, a, I was offered a job at Los Alamos, and I had to, uh, be, and to get it past a security clearance back then, but I didn't take the job, okay. and and um, no, I I, I I no interest on, personally in doing classified research. That doesn't mean I don't think people shouldn't do it. I just myself wasn't interested. Well, why do you think we? Why do you think NASA? Obviously, like in the 60s... And NASA isn't. When I talk about classified, NASA isn't really classified. I'm talking it about isn't the, really. No, it's NASA is a public government agency that now every now and then NASA will work. listen to me for a second. All every, right, all every right. now and then, now and then, NASA will used to with the space shuttle send up satellites that were Defense Department satellites, and so that mission was classified mm. because they were working for the Defense Department. But NASA is not an agency. NASA. Try it, the whole purpose of NASA is to try and be open. In fact, that's why they had a commission that that explored all the claims of UAPs. And recently, as you may know, although it doesn't get as much publicity as some guy talking about Congress to Congress about his good friend, best friend's wife's brothers, <laughs> who, you know. But uh, but um, you know, they just you, you can see it on the internet. You watch the NASA report on UFOs, and they'll say there's no evidence. There's ne- wait, NASA it, said this? Yes, when it came did they out say of. This? Uh, 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 you see, that's the point. It's not about uh, two months ago. Really, it was headed by a friend, of, a friend of mine. A guy I've written papers with David Spurgle, who's a who who uh, was at Princeton, is now at. at um, but could they just uh, be covering uh, it up? No. <laughs> the whole point is: Do you not think that they would want to be more famous? You would have heard of them 
if they want to be more famous, well, they maybe could have they don't have a choice. There maybe. it is. Okay. No, NASA report mm, finds mm, no evidence that UFOs are extraterrestrial. September fourteenth. Na- NASA's in, independent in, study team released its highly anticipated report on UFOs on September. And believe 14th, me, they would have loved to find evidence for aliens. All right, hold on. Go scroll down where it says bottom line. Bottom line, the study team found no evidence that reported UAP observations are extraterrestrial. But Lawrence, I need facts here. I need data. This is just an article. You know what I mean? Well, the point is, yeah, it'd be great. Find me some data that they're extraterrestrial. <laughs> and that's fair. I, yeah, and yeah. I, I do and there think isn't that's any. Fair. And the fact that there hasn't been for the last six years, in spite of all the claims, is good evidence that there isn't any. Well, why have, why have we lost interest at NASA and in pop culture and things as, and I don't mean to say mm-hmm. like oversimplified, but as simple as going to the moon like we did well, 50 years NASA ago? Well, NASA hasn't, hasn't lost interest in it. It's still doing it. In my mind, it's largely a waste of money, but it's still... Why is it a waste of money? Because it involves people. <laughs> I mean, if you're look, I, I shouldn't say it's a waste of money. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think the moon is actually a reasonable destination for NASA to consider going to. But what you have to realize when it comes to science, the best science NASA does doesn't involve putting people into space. And there's a simple reason: if you put a person in space, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the cost is devoted to keeping them alive. Yeah. Okay. You put a rover into space. As I like to say, you could send a rover to Mars for the cost of making a movie about sending Bruce Willis to Mars, okay? Mm. And so, on the whole, we can do so much more science and so much better science without putting people in space. That doesn't mean we shouldn't put people in space. There are other reasons to put people into space. Adventure, national priorities, national esteem, and maybe, to some extent, um, you know, industrial arguments. But from the point of view of understanding fundamental science, the best NASA science NASA's ever done, and probably will ever do, doesn't involve humans. Well, do you think that's why a lot of it involves humans on the ground, not in space? Do you think that's why part of it is now it's moving to a lot of potential private research with that? Like you see Jeff Bezos trying to do this stuff? I'm all in favor of people spending their own money on that kind of thing, private money. And and I was involved in a a Russian billionaire spent a lot of money um, trying to think of a way to send an object to a nearby star at a fair fraction speed light. And Stephen Hawking was on the program, so it was always called Breakthrough. Which billionaire? uh, Yuri Milner. And, okay. and he's funded Breakthrough Listen, Breakthrough, and I was on Breakthrough Starshot. And, uh, and I thought it was really neat because you'd explore the limits of technology. Unfortunately, at every meeting, I became more pessimistic about being able to do it. But mm. I'm happy to have billionaires spend their money on that kind of stuff. Uh, got it. Well, Lawrence Krauss, okay. I really appreciate you coming here. Thank you. Where can people get the best information about you? Twitter? Twitter, misinformation and information you'll find on Twitter. <laughs> I have, you can look at my website, lawrencemkraus.com, or the, or the uh, Origins Project Foundation, which is the foundation I run. And you yeah. have the podcast, too. And, the, and exactly. I was going to say the, the uh, podcast, which you can see uh, ad-free on our Substack site, Critical Mass. You can go to YouTube and, and look at the Origins Project Foundation Yeah, you got podcast. a lot of amazing people on Yeah, there. I'm really lucky, and including, including Bill Shatner, so you see. Oh, yeah. See, i got to go see that. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, but so listen, fun. thank you so much for doing this. I definitely got to do this with you again. You are entertaining as hell, man. Thank you very much. All it's right, been ev- a lot of fun. Everybody else, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace. Thank you for watching this episode, guys. If you haven't already, please smash that subscribe button and hit that like button on the video. It is a huge, huge help to getting our videos into the algorithm on YouTube. So thank you to everyone who does that. And also, if you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can get me at Julian Dory Podcast for daily exclusive clips that we put out from the show or on my personal page at Julian D. Dory. The links are in the description below. See you guys for the next one.